VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Friday, February the 10th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly. David Williams is producing this. Come on with an edition of Open Line. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free, long-distance, one 888 590 VOCM, which is 8626. So, pretty brisk morning out there. Still a little bit icy. Some messy conditions coming to many parts of the province over the weekend. But all in all, beautiful, calm day here in St. John's. At the moment, all right, the Growlers back in action tonight at Mary Brown Center. Puck drop at 7 p.m. trying to bounce back from a 4-2 loss against Adirondack. Um, I think that was Wednesday night. Yeah, Wednesday night. So, they're back at it. Tonight, and of course, it is Super Bowl weekend. You heard Jerry Lynn Mackey in the VOCM Morning Show taking it to the streets to see if people are interested in watching the Super Bowl. Curiously, she didn't get a whole lot of folks out there who said they are watching it. Now, football is huge. Even though uh, our football league is really pretty new here in the province, still a lot of football fans and the... The excitement surrounding fantasy football and the amount of money bet on the football is extraordinary. And, of course, that will be the case here on the Super Bowl. So Kansas City takes on the Philadelphia Eagles. Interesting on this one. So I also heard Jerry Lynn speaking with the retired Grenfell uh, professor... Patty Monahan, he's actually in one of the Super Bowl ads. And, of course, a lot of attention going to the Super Bowl commercials. So he's in a Pringles ad, which is kind of cool. You know how much it costs to advertise a 30-second spot on the Super Bowl? Last year was $6.6 million per 30 seconds. This year it's $7 million for 30 seconds on the Super Bowl. And that doesn't even factor in the cost for these big companies to have gone to their marketing and advertising companies to create the ad and all that goes with it. So it's $10 bucks for a 30-second ad. Pretty amazing stuff. And also for sports fans, if you want to watch a real great contact sport, Six Nations Rugby. It's the second weekend of, and the big one coming up tomorrow is number one in the world, Ireland, hosting France in Dublin. France are the defending champions, but Ireland, as I had a great chat with a new acquaintance of mine yesterday at the grocery store, uh, Mr. Cullen, he's from Ireland, and he mentioned, and he's absolutely right, Ireland are operating at an exceptional speed and pace. And the choreography on that Irish side is something else. So tomorrow, Ireland and France. Good morning to you, Mr. Cullen. Also, it's just a week away before the beginning of the Canada Winter Games. I'm sure all the athletes and their families and their coaches and trainers and managers are pretty whipped up now. Can't wait to get the PEI to compete in the Games beginning on the 18th of February, running to the 8th of March. A lot of folks maybe don't have the time or the wherewithal to make it to PEI to support whoever it is belong to them. But you're going to get a chance to watch it from here. So you just have, have to go to canadagames.ca forward slash watch there's going to be some 1200 hours of live event coverage there's going to be opportunities to get into the archives it includes the opening ceremonies cbc is actually going to do a a fair number of uh, coverage hours as well 140 hours coming from the seed so there you go opportunities to watch the canada winter games all right a lot of talk out there maybe not on this show and we certainly can talk about it but we know what's going on in the world of tech and the breakneck pace which with with which uh, innovation continues so whether it be with artificial intelligence and what have you the chat gpt i don't know if you know what that is but more people are involved with chat gpt than any other social media platform on the face of the earth so 
when computers started to become a little bit more involved in the interactive business, the intuitive operations, it was on this date in 1996 that the IBM computer Deep Blue became the first computer to win a game of chess against the reigning human world chess champion. And Deep Blue beat Garry Kasparov on that day. Just a quick music note. It was actually this date in history, 1942, that the very first goal record was presented. And it was presented by RCA to their artist, Glenn Miller, to celebrate 100, pardon me, 1.2 million co- sold copies of Chattanooga Choo Choo. First goal record ever, 1942. Okay. So long overdue, but the government is going ahead with a comprehensive review of long-term care and personal care homes throughout the province. And this has to happen. So there's lots of focus areas. Number one on many people's minds, of course, and I bring it up all the time because I think it's a devastating story when it comes to bear, is couples being separated after decades together, different levels of care required, and consequently living in different homes. And you can only imagine the anguish that brings to those couples and their families and their friends. So that's going to be part of it. Also, the issue with admission. Now, there's a staffing shortage. There's lots of empty beds in long-term care. So I guess until we get the staffing issues figured out, that that is going to persist into the future. We spoke with, uh, who was on the show? Pleeman Forsey, I I guess it was, eh, from Exploits, talking about the fact that there's 30 empty beds in one care facility out in Central in a 60-bed unit. So this is going to be important work. There's a good team that's been brought together to conduct this. They're also looking for someone with lived experience in the long-term care or personal care home system. And I know lots of people who have already put their names forward via email here and a couple on social media. So they're going to look at all kinds of admission, uh, eligibility issues. And, of course, you know, a measure of society is how you treat the most vulnerable, whether it be children and, of course, seniors. So in this province, there's going to be some look at more and more private offerings. Unlike other provinces across the country, we really do have very few private offerings in that world. So it's important to get this right. And this review is going to be an important piece of work. It's going to take some six to eight months to complete. And again, you know, you think about some of the stories we've heard in long-term care homes, fake nurses, the dignity with which some people are not being treated, so their safety and security and their happiness, staffing levels, separation of couples. There's a lot to talk about in long-term care. And if you'd like to bring it forward, your perspective, whether or not you have lived through it, like Gavin Wills, who sent a tweet out about the fact he'd love to sit on the panel. His parents were separated because of their different level of medical need. So whether it be Mr. Will, who would like to chime in and retell his story this morning and talk about the impact it had on his parents and his family and their friends. And if you'd like to share your story, whether it is somewhere in the not-too-distant future, your parents may need a place in a long-term care facility. And the worries of being separated, I'm sure, is daunting to say the least. And let's add to it, you know, as the seniors advocate, uh, Susan Walsh, said that the federal government is considering an aging-in-place benefit which, of course, all of these work in tandem to come up with the best approach to how the seniors in the province are treated and accommodated and cared for in home or in one of these facilities. So let's take it on this morning. And some of the staffing shortage issues, I mean, we talk about it all the time, but some of them seem a little bit unnecessary. For instance, with doctors. 
the competition to get into a medical school is, of course, extraordinary. And there's not that many medical schools here in the country, period. There's only 17 medical schools. Tens of thousands of pre-med students are competing for only 2,800 first-year openings in one of the 17 med schools across the country. Consequently, many Canadians will seek the opportunity to go to medical school abroad. Australia, Ireland are mentioned notably in this particular story. There may be as many, so this story goes, there might be as many as 13,000 medical doctors in Canada who are not practicing because they don't have a two-year residency position, and consequently, they don't have the license. So the medical schools are in charge of the residency issue. And of course they want to see their students trained in Canada to be the priority for getting a residency position. But when you think about it out loud, how is this possibly the reality in Canada? Staffing shortages, doctors in particular, is not new. It didn't just happen all of a sudden. It wasn't overnight. We've been working towards this for years in this province and right across the country. So whether the medical schools need to be brought back to a little bit more thoughtful reality and to accommodate as many people as possible. Of course, you have to have been a graduate from a notable accredited school, of which there are many in many parts of the world, including Ireland and Australia. But can you imagine that? So maybe some of the expansions that we see in universities, and I'll bring it up again here at Memorial University, and the wants to have a law school when not so sure there's any need beyond Memorial University's prestige, as opposed to expand the offering in the medical school. But just imagine how many tens of thousands of young Canadians are trying to compete for 2,800 spots in only 17 medical schools in the entirety of Canada. So looks like there's probably the work that can be done on that front to make, make it more and more available for Canadians. And for context, foreign trained doctors account for in and around 25% of all doctors. And that's the information come from the Canadian Institute for Health Information. Seems we could do a little bit better there. And this is going to be a continued conversation as the backlogs continue, as the staffing shortages continue. Some Canadians may indeed seek out private health care. Now, again, there's many examples of private health care offerings already in the country, tons of them. I mean, even if you go to a doctor's clinic, for all intents and purposes, that person is a subcontractor. If you go to the dentist, it's a private offering, you know, whether it be you have the insurance to cover it or otherwise. And then there's blood collection. There's all kinds of things that are actually private already. But more and more surgeries are being done in private settings. And it's not just about what Premier Doug Ford in Ontario has done. And that's what I think has really kicked off more and more of these conversations. But here's just a couple of examples where it is absolutely real and the numbers are growing exponentially. This is just one private clinic in Laval, Quebec. It's called the Duval Clinic. They have quadrupled the number of cases they're doing at their clinic, basically and mostly hip and knee replacements. They charge their patients about 20000 all the way to $28,000 for that procedure in a private clinic. So there is going to have to be some attention given to this. You know, the Canada Health Act is the legislation governing the delivery of health care in the country. There's many loopholes in it which allow for some of these private offerings. You know, so there's two schools of thought. Okay, so you have the money and you're in the queue in the public system. You go down the street, pay your $25,000 to get your hip replaced, so you're out of the queue, which bumps me up the wait list. But the unfortunate downsides are also very, very real. While we're talking about a shortage of doctors, the doctors in these private clinics very likely at one point operated in the public system, so they're being lured away. Maybe for the so-called better work-life balance or more money, whatever the case may be. So it sounds right when you say, okay, you got cash, get out of the public queue. But it comes with a bunch of 
ripple effect potential problems, including taking healthcare professionals out of the public system. When you compare the cost of getting your hip or your knee replaced in a publicly funded hospital, it costs about $12,200-ish when compared to the twenty dollars to $28,000 in a private setting. The numbers of people getting these joint replacements in 2019 to 2020 was about 140,000 Canadians. So big demand for it. And of course, there's been some moves made in this province to deal with that backlog. The traveling orthopedic teams, which have already been up to St. Anthony, work is being done to prepare the Carbonair Hospital to do some of this orthopedic work as well. But the whole concept of private healthcare, albeit already part of it, because there's nothing free in this world, you know, it's universal healthcare. It's not free healthcare. We pay for it through our tax dollars. But the private system seems to be growing very, very quickly. Just that one clinic quadrupled the number of cases they've done in that clinic just over the past few years. So that's a real thing. Okay, let's go back to school, K-12. Good news for the folks in the Stephenville area. They have been told by the school district that French immersion will be offered. There was a worry based on the enrollment numbers that there would be no French immersion offering. And so they're asking the district to consider, you know, the cultural, cultural and heritage uh, importance of French in the region. But because they were told, and because it got into the news, and we've had some conversations with parents in the area on this program, so there was a push to see how many people in Stephenville would like to have their children in early French immersion. At the time when the story broke, and the district gave warning to the residents, there was about 13 five-year-olds that were registered for, for early French immersion. That number has grown to almost 23. So the district said French immersion will indeed proceed, and there's lots of upside to early French immersion, in my personal experience, having two of my boys have gone through it. And now a little bit more dodgy and dicey. We can talk about anything in education. And I'm still getting emails about the whole cell phone conversations that we had. It was either early this week or late last week about whether or not you should be able to have your cell phone in the classroom. If you, if there's an emergency, which is why many people and parents give their children a cell phone, well, call the office, right? Anyway. In the courts, there's a verdict expected today in the Krista Grimes case. She's a 34-year-old woman who's been charged with sexual exploitation of a male student. They had sex, allegedly had sex, in the back of his parents' car when he was 16. He's now 21. I don't know what's going to happen there, but, you know, it's kind of remarkable how that's been given so little attention. But Krista Grimes' verdict is coming down today. And there was a story coming out of the province of New Brunswick yesterday, which has implications here in this province. They've charged a teacher, a 37-year-old man, two counts of sexual assault, two counts of sexual interference, one count of assault, and one count of breaching court conditions. And this all took place in the province of New Brunswick. And the story about this Stephen Blackwood guy... I mean, uh, of course, these are all allegations, but what a creep. I mean, taking pictures of children at the pools and putting on his YouTube channel, him dancing and frolicking with children, and now, allegedly, has been sexually abusing them. The issue that relates to this province is he did indeed teach in this province from 2013 to 2022. So... The RCMP are saying they believe that there's many more kids who are involved. So whether it be in New Brunswick or, yes, if your children were taught by or exposed to Mr. Stephen Blackwood, maybe a conversation, albeit difficult, is required. So, yeah, he was here for 2013 to 2022 as a teacher. So I guess you know what to do. All right. So the old strike continues at Memorial University. Thoughts on the picket line is that with reading week coming, that there will be possibly at least two more weeks of strike. When they met yesterday, 
all of a sudden, the university finally requested a written proposal from the faculty association, which they say they were prepared to offer a long time ago. So it's dragging on. And it, yes, it's getting more contentious. So you know all the things. Job security for the per-course instructors, I think, is the right reference. And the collegial governance and on, all and on it goes. And many point to, okay, so there's been some $65 million held back by the, by the government. Consequently, we've seen the explosion in tuition. There's also, I think, a lot to be said for just how much, you know, money saving a lot of money now by not paying their instructors, some 800 plus who are now on the picket lines. But you know, people look to the administration and the size of, and the maintenance deficit and all the rest. Here's an interesting thread that someone sent me, and I'll read just a little bit of it. The number of vice presidents at Memorial University went from three in 2000 to seven in 2022. And this is as per their own financial statements. The student population increased by 13.5% in the same period. So went from almost 17,000 to just over 19,000. Some of those VPs were in administrative positions as directors of different schools, what have you. So it doesn't paint in the entirety of a clear picture, but it went from two to seven. In addition to that, when you compare the number of VPs at MUN amongst the top 15 comprehensive universities in the country, Memorial University has the most or the highest number of vice presidents. The second university by the number of VPs is uh, Simon Fraser University. But at the same time, Simon Fraser University has almost 19,000 more students than Memorial University. So that's probably the information that's making its way to the streets to help people inform who they support and why. So I appreciate someone sending that along. And this is Psychology Month. And we've talked with whether it be Dr. Jean Hubbard and others about psychology. And maybe we can get Dr. Hubbard on the show sometime this month for sure to talk about Psychology Month. But... At Memorial University, for 30 years, their residency program provided a large percentage of the psychologists working in this province. This year, they don't have enough faculty to take a full cohort. So, and the complications there for mentoring for the graduating psychologists and what have you has a absolute ripple effect throughout that world. We've had a few calls this week about World Energy GH2. Lots of attention there, especially if you're on the Port of Port Peninsula. And we first for some people who are on the picket or the protest line, pardon me, at mainland. And that's, of course, where they're putting up this meteorological evaluation tower. Now World Energy GH2 went to the courts yesterday to seek an injunction to stop the protesters from blocking access to that site. Probably not going to hear a decision until maybe early next week. The protesters were given the heads up that this happened. They get a chance to respond in court. So World Energy, this was inevitable. And it happens, I would imagine, every single time where a company doing whatever work and local protesters see the want to shut down one site or another, which they've been doing in mainland for a couple of weeks here now. So World Energy GH2 is taken into the courts, and I'm sure that just further fans the frustrations for many in the area. And very quickly, this is, I guess, to finish off the preamble with a little bit of quasi-good news. And it's hard to keep track of this anymore. How about the prices of fuels? I just don't know what to say. So diesel, down over 11.5 cents today. It dropped 6.2 cents a couple of days ago. But, of course, there was one time last week where it went up like 30-odd cents. So it's like a dog's stomach. It's up and down with no rhyme, no reason, as far as many of us can tell. Still, for diesel customers paying about $2.11 on the Avalon Peninsula, the price fluctuates up to about two fifteen in Springdale. Furnace oil down $0.10 cents a litre. 
Good. The stoving oil dropped about 14.07 cents, and gas remains unchanged today. But some good news for some of those folks consuming or using those fuels. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. Uh, one second, I'll reply to Jeff here. So he says, hey, did you just say that more people use ChatGPT than any other social media platform? Incredible if I heard that correctly. The news story I read, Jeff, was talking about initial uptake. And so it compared Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, Facebook in uh, six-month intervals when it was first launched. ChatGPT had more people sign up for their artificial intelligence platform than any of the other social media platforms by leaps and bounds. And I don't imagine even many people are really familiar with ChatGPT. It's easy enough to wrap your mind around the TikTok and what have you. I mean, people talk about Chinese spy balloons yet are still using TikTok, amazing stuff. So yes, ChatGPT has an enormous wide usage. And Fabian's looking for a shout out, you got it. Uh, his nephew, Carter. Carter turns 14 today. Happy birthday to Carter. And he's ranked number one in Canada for his age group at the 50-meter breaststroke. Terrific. Happy birthday and keep swimming, kid. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we're speaking with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, there was 531 police reported sexual assaults just last year in this province. That's a 28% increase. But in Labrador, the sexual assault rate is four times the national average, and they're still waiting for more supports from the provincial government. Join us on line number six is the Sexual Violence Prevention Coordinator in Happy Valley Goose Bay. That's Deirdre Connolly. One second here. Good morning, Deirdre. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? I'm doing okay this morning. How about you? So far, so good. So the numbers in Labrador are staggering, and still we don't have the required supports. What kind of healthcare professional do you need in Labrador to help with the folks who have been victimized? Um, I think, you know, as it was in the media last week, they're, uh, we're advocating for a sexual assault nurse examiner. Uh, that's one piece of a puzzle of kind of a variety of different supports that you need to, to better support survivors. And the healthcare is one sector in which we need more support. Um, so yeah, as of late in the media in particular, we're talking about kind of the need for the sexual assault nurse examiner, which is a specialized nurse um, who has training around trauma-informed practice, who's kind of on the front lines responding to those who might uh, present at a hospital or a health clinic that are looking for post-sexual assault medical care. And who is offering that type of care as best possible at this moment in time without this specialized nurse? Right now, it's it's the nurses and healthcare practitioners that, you know, are in the clinics and health centers and hospitals across Labrador. Yeah. Would a sexual assault nurse, is there specialized training or background required to be as effective as as needed in Labrador specifically? You mean like different from the sexual assault nurse examiner training? Yeah, I, yes. I, I, yeah. Just because we hear a lot about the not only the cultural differences, but the whether it be issues regarding intergenerational trauma or colonialism, yeah. maybe an understanding of Labrador and Labradorians to be as best possible as this nurse. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, Labrador Rental Health, um, I can't speak to you know the kind of cultural training and cultural competency training that they might provide. Um, they've been excellent to work with. I've done a lot of meaningful work with uh, folks from Labrador Rental Health and providing conversations and like education and training from let's say folks like me who can offer a piece of that conversation which is how how do you best respond to someone who's disclosed sexual violence to you or showed up looking for uh, post-sexual assault health care you know there's there's a way to go about that and they've been really 
really receptive to having those like capacity building conversations. Um, but as far as the cultural competency, colonialism, intergenerational trauma, I wouldn't be able to speak to what they're doing um, internally with respect to that. So, I mean, I mentioned that the uh, rate of sexual assault in Labrador four times the national average. It's about four to six times higher than here on the island. Yeah. You know, it's one thing when people feel comfortable enough to come forward and report it through police and then get the supports mm-hmm. they need, whether it be in the criminal justice system or in the healthcare system. But there's right. also conversations surrounding uh, education and prevention. I mean, I'm not going to mm-hmm. put you on the spot to say why is it so extreme in Labrador, but what is being done in Labrador? How does the conversation look with education and awareness and hopefully prevention? Sure, that's a great question. Um, I think... You know, first and foremost, I I don't have the answers uh, because there are so many answers. Um, But somewhere to start, right, is so, for example, I'm a good example. The Sexual Assault Center, um, historically, you know, has only existed in St. John's. And we only opened up the Happy Valley Goose Bay office here in Labrador as of March 2020. So very new. It's still based on project project funding. So that means that there isn't, it's not a core funding scenario. We don't have the funding to ensure that we're going to be in Labrador for the long term. And the reason that that's um, an important point of conversation in, in, you know, I alluded earlier to that, that puzzle piece, right? So a big puzzle piece is somebody on the ground who can kind of facilitate the education and prevention piece. And that's what I'm hoping to do here. And, and I've been working with community members across Labrador to build that capacity. Because like you just said, most people, we know that maybe 5%, the tip of the iceberg, uh, go on to, after a, an experience of sexual violence, will go to police or, or the healthcare system, maybe not the healthcare system, but let's say to a SANE or... So most people lean into community. They lean into their family, their friends, their neighbors, their teachers. And I think the the most profound effect and impact we can have in supporting survivors is knowing how we as individuals that compose our communities can respond to each other with, with care and understanding. Um, and that's, that's learning. It's, it's simple, but it's not easy. And, and that part is on us as a community. How many sexual assault nurse examiners are in the province, and where are they? That's a good question. I don't have the total, but I know that they exist in Western. For Western Health, there is a few, and then the majority of them are in uh, St. John's. I know there's certainly one at St. Clair's. Uh, I have a a personal relationship with someone who has seen that particular nurse. And if I remember the news story correctly, that nurse had seen somewhere in excess of 800 patients, but less than half or around half actually reported their assault to police. So, and then once again, I think maybe it was in the same paragraph, there was no such pediatric program to deal with victims under the age of 18. Would that training be different for uh, 18 plus versus 18 and under? Yes. Yeah, I believe it is. Yeah, I, I think there's a particular nuance, right, when you're dealing with pediatrics. And, and frankly, Patty, it's a big piece of the puzzle, right? A, a, God, you, you can imagine, right, that children and, and youth who experience sexual violence are just the need for them to, to have that specialized training as far as who and how is, is handling them um, and that experience of trauma afterwards when they present to the hospital. Is, the, the need is so, so high. And you're right, that doesn't even exist in the Avalon. Which is amazing because we know what happens. And it happens probably a lot more than we understand. You're totally right. Of course it does. Yeah. Yeah. So there's been some changes to uh, 
how sexual assault victims come forward and the investigations and how evidence is held and they can be do it anonymously through the RNC and what have you. What do people need to understand there about how some of that has changed and how it could hopefully see more and more people confident or wanting to come forward? I think uh, (laughs) that's a tough question. I think that for everybody, you know, like I said, the majority won't go forward. And I don't know that that's, I can't speak to it. It really depends on every single individual is going to have a very different experience. And what, what does justice mean? And what does healing look like? And healing is, is for many people a lifelong journey, you know, that may or may not include forms of, uh, of justice that fit into like the legal system, for example. Um, that's not for everybody. That's not everyone's pathway to, to healing or to justice. Um, and honestly, I think that that's a good, good part uh, sorry, a good place to start your understanding is that the justice system and the legal systems are not necessarily um, the most effective or the most desired path for everybody to take. Because I think instinctually and, and through the media and kind of just our culture, there's this assumption that that is what everybody does and maybe that's what we should do. And I hear a lot of survivors say that that's something that they feel they should or you know, that they've got the responsibility to do. And I think just understanding that for everybody, whatever path they choose is is the right path because it's their path. And, I mean, it's a, a societal issue. If more and more people felt comfortable enough to come forward, not only to present at a hospital, then to report to police, sure. because when that doesn't happen, the person out there who's the perpetrator is now emboldened. We have a sexual predator on our hands who we don't ha- haven't been identified, hasn't been investigated by police, maybe hasn't been charged, tried, or convicted, or found innocent, but it has a big societal impact, whether or not you've personally been involved inside your family or otherwise. And, I mean, just think, th- take this a step further. There's stories from around the country, one province in Land Canada, I can't remember which one, where a young victim, somewhere in her mid-twenties, presented. There was no trauma nurse on site that night, and so told, go home. Go home, mm-hmm. uh, save your clothes, don't get a shower, all those types of things. Imagine if you had, you wanted to present, you did, and mm-hmm. you're told, go home. You think she's yeah. coming back? Probably not. It's, yeah. it's, it's yeah. an amazing, complicated issue. I'll give you the final thoughts here, Deirdre. Go ahead. Okay. Would you like to say anything else before we say goodbye? Okay. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I think it is a complicated issue. There's a lot of different solutions. Um, I would just encourage everybody and anyone, like you said, if you've been touched personally or within your family or community, just do what you can to to best understand how we can directly support survivors in our life. And that's the, the most important and the first step. And it's a step that we can all do right now, right here. Appreciate the time this morning and the work you do. Thank you, Deirdre. Absolutely. No problem. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. As Deirdre Connolly, she's the Sexual Violence Prevention Coordinator in Happy Valley Goose Bay's office, which has simply only been open since March of 2020. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about the federal health care announcement, the month strike, and whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, Dr. Phil Earl. You're on the air. Yeah, good morning, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. I uh, just happened to catch your introduction there, and uh, it's a wonderful uh, topic and uh, certainly needed. Uh, I was going to phone a few days ago after I heard the Premier, who came back from uh, Ottawa, they had the meeting with the Prime Minister 
about the federal money that some billions of dollars that they were going to put into the health care system. Uh, I don't know, was it $200 billion? Or? Yeah, it's $196 billion over 10 years, but $46 billion of that is reflective of the increase offered by Ottawa. Yeah, yeah and, you know, it should have been done a long time ago. I won't get into that, but uh, then I heard the Premier make a remark. Now, the Premier is a surgeon. And as you know, I was a physician for 30 years and retired. I was an emergency room physician and uh, had a medical clinic in, in Houston for 30 years, graduate of Dalhousie. But the premier made a remark that uh, it kind of uh, disturbed me, and I, I want to make a comment, but when you spoke this morning, I thought it was a good time to phone in and make the remark. Now, there's no question that this money is definitely needed. But, for example, I'll give you an example. It's been talked about in St. John's for some time that we need a new hospital in there. The, the, the St. Clair's Hospital has done magnificent work over the years and is old, and probably, you know, that needs to be a, a new hospital to take over some of those duties, no doubt. And But in, in my way of looking at it, the number one issue that we have is not more facilities, more hospitals, and it's not what, as the Premier said, we... He mentioned that some of this money, we need new equipment, new machinery. I don't know if it was MRIs or patch scanners or whatever the new machines are now for doing these, you know, investigative tests and so on. So no doubt all that's needed. If you go down places like New York and Houston, who have billions of dollars, great economy, they have everything. But what's needed before that, if we do get this money from the federal government, we don't need to be putting it into first putting it in the new equipment, the new uh, departments of investigation. It needs to go into the number one issue in our healthcare system, which is looking after patients, seniors, which is doctors, nurses, and technicians. We need more of them. We need to take the pressure and and uh, the overwork conditions away from these people. They become inhuman. It's very hard to put in, you know, 24-hour shifts and weekends. We need more doctors, nurses, and technicians. Repeat it again, because the number one issue, we have 100,000 people in this province who don't have a family doctor out in the communities. Um, to see a specialist, it takes... I'll give you just briefly give you my situation. I have bad shoulders, arthritic uh, osteoarthritis, and for three years I've needed a replacement surgeon. I tremendous pain. I have to get steroid shots in my shoulder, and it took me uh, over a year to get an appointment to see an orthopedic surgeon in Gander. Now I'm on a list. Who knows? A year, year and a half to have my shoulder uh, repaired, and in St. John's it's two, three years just to get an appointment. Well, this this is this is the problem. We need more doctors and and technicians sure. to alleviate the backlog, the suffering and pain of elderly people just to see a doctor. I mean, listen, you, you take a senior who has problems, multiple problems, got a travel to some They don't care about a PET scanner or, or MRI or whatever the latest thing is. They want to see a doctor and get primary care. Sure. The premier, I, the premier should know, you know, it's just a comment from an ordinary citizen, you and I, and it's not going to change their idea. But please, Mr. Premier, everyone in there, my MHA and district, say, listen to what the common voice is saying we need doctors, nurses, and uh, technicians to help getting treatment for the patient. We don't need to be waiting in an emergency room near 12 to 15, 20 hours to see a doctor. Uh, I think the province recognizes that, but, you know, whether or not, how do you, how you focus this money, I'm glad it's not my job. Because, you know, we even talk about replacing St. Clair's. Would that make it more attractive to have a modern, first-class facility to work in as a doctor or a registered nurse or a nurse practitioner or a licensed practical nurse or whatever? Maybe. Do you need the best equipment possible for the best positive health 
better outcomes? Probably. So here's where I think the balance would be extremely hard to strike here because the immediacy of need is obvious. Even if it's just family doctors, uh, the most recent numbers from the Medical Association is 136,000 of us, or th- pardon me, 136,000 new Flanders and Labradorians do not have a family doctor. But let me bounce this off you, Dr. Earl. So... In addition to that, this new money covers about 50% of what's been recommended in the health accord. So while we try to deal with people's needs today, how do we actually use some of that money to talk about reducing healthcare expenditures and people's interaction with the healthcare system in the future? Because that's got to be part of it. I mean, yes, of course, uh, you're absolutely right, Patty. Well, it's, here's some numbers to it's consider. It's a complex problem. But it is. The number one issue is, as I mentioned, we first got to get doctors, nurses, and take more of them to, to help the patients that are waiting around and can't see doc. That's the number no one. one are, no one's arguing that. But the, but the point I'm trying to make is, how do we actually? understand and determine how that money gets spent. For instance, they say, as based on the research that's been done, the social determinants of health, social, economic, environmental factors play a role in about 60% of health outcomes. The healthcare system itself accounts for 25%. Personal genetics makes up, the fu- makes up 15%. Also, provincial health spending has increased by 232% in the last four decades. Social spending increased by only 6%. So we're spending more and more and more and more and more and more, and more money on healthcare. Positive healthcare outcomes aren't, keep, aren't keeping up with it. I'm just trying to paint that big picture where... Well, yes, Patty, listen, you're 100% right. So what's needed... Is a, is a think tank team in medicine with all these issues that you mentioned. They, they have to be part of the problem, obviously. It's a very complex problem, we know. But we have to get people who know about all branches and get people to listen. Uh, the, 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 the political people who are making the decisions and the protocols for our health care system need to understand and listen to input from people like what you and I are talking about, common sense, about how to get treatment and stop the suffering and waiting time of our, our patients, sure. particularly the elderly people. All that is part of the picture, but you can't just say, okay, we're going to put $3 million on an MRI machine because that could be 10 doctors and 25 nurses added to the problem. So we need to get that first before we get a new MRI machine. Anyway, but it's not going to be decided on the phone. But the point needs to be understood. I'd like to hear someone in, in, in our politics, in our government, to at least entertain these ideas and, and start this. Get a team together and do this in, in do A, B, C in order. First is a patient care they're suffering and, and, and cut down their time and their waiting. That's what needs to be done first. Understood. Appreciate the time this morning. Thank you very much for listening. Take Thank care. You. Bye-bye. God bless. That's Dr. Phil Earl, of course, with 30 years' experience in the field. Let's go to line number one. Barry, you're on the air. Yeah, just a second there. Now, Patty, sorry. Line number one. Barry, are you ready to roll? Yes, good morning, Patty. Good Thanks morning, for taking you. my call. Sorry about that. No problem. Patty, uh, we're on a head of different uh, color this morning. Uh, I'm with a group uh, that was opposed to the uh, waste incineration program, <clears throat> excuse me, waste incineration program out in Lewisport by a uh, company called World Synergy World Power. Uh, thankfully, the government seen the, the mirror of what we were talking about and were proactive and, and defeated the uh, or turn the proposal down, and that's great. Um, we are continuing our lobby, though, to uh, to that to that effort. Um, we uh, we want to see now a uh, an amendment to legislation, possibly that will prevent any company or any individual from ever coming to Newfoundland Labrador again 
to make a proposal such as this, which would inevitably turn us into the garage capital of the world. Yeah, but, you know, I, I suppose, well, fair enough, but even when the province ultimately said no to Synergy World Energy, because they've had a bunch of fits and starts in different parts of the world where they put forward proposals, never got off the ground, lots of reasons why, and certainly major concerns with being uh, the world's garbage dump. But the province referred back to, and I think it was Minister Davis at the time in that portfolio, referred back to a decision uh, from the early 90s, I believe, about the importation of garbage. And so if that's on the books, I suppose it's as fundamental as formalize that with an amendment in the current legislation so that people understand exactly what is and is not allowed in the province. Because it was sort of weird how they just referred back to a decades-old decision. Yes, uh, yes, Patty, that's right. Uh, the, uh, that, was, that came about from the uh, SNAG group, actually, from the group called Say No to American Garbage, uh, to an uh, incinerator proposal back in the 90s for out Long Harbor, I believe, Patty. So uh, we just like to see a, a little bit more of a stronger uh, uh, legislation that would prevent anything from coming to this uh, again. Uh, the government is proactive. That is, they turned down before the uh, environmental assessment uh, had been uh, ordered or read. Um, and I've been communicating with Minister, Minister Davis uh, about this, about um, we're not getting very far and we're not getting very much information. We uh, we just submitted, I just submitted a, uh, a letter, email to Minister Davis uh, outlining our concerns and looking for a meeting. Uh, just submitted to a couple of days ago. I haven't had an answer yet. But we'd like to uh, be able to discuss this and see where everything is laying to and finally get get some stronger wording in the uh, legislation that would prevent anything from this like happening again. We are next week or in the weeks to come going to be uh, making a uh, public press release about our position and uh, meant to his credit, Minister Davis and the Premier, have uh, said that they are they don't want to see any kind of project like this to Newfoundland and Labrador. However, we want to uh, we want to just finalize this now, either with an amendment in legislation or some stronger uh, wording that would just prevent this from ever happening again. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounded very alluring to some, especially in the region, out in Lewisport. You know, they were talking about a couple of billion dollars and uh, four or five hundred jobs. The problem was, you know, some countries have stopped taking any of these recyclables, plastic in particular, like, for instance, China. We were sending a lot of it to China. They said, nah, we're not taking that anymore. So the problem would be even sifting through what's sent over because it'd be big containers with some of the product that could be used in their gasification plant and some that would simply end up in a landfill. So all in all, it really felt like a very dodgy idea. No government has ever approved any of their proposals. They don't have a single completed project anywhere in the world. So, yeah, keeps in the loop uh, as it makes its way through the hands of government officials. Yes, thank you, Patty. That's uh, that's good. And uh, like I say, now just making the public aware of it. And uh, hopefully now Minister Davis will come up and uh, give us a date to have a meeting and uh, we can uh, express our concerns and see what the government's concerns are. And between us all, hopefully work it out that... uh, put some kind of uh, stronger wording and that will prevent this. Appreciate this this morning, Barry. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much for your time, Patty. As always, it's been a pleasure. My pleasure, sir. Take care. Have a nice weekend. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to the emergency room at the Health Sciences Center. And then I do see that the PJ Canning Bridge 
a major connection between the North and the South of Marystown is closing. What's going on? We'll hear from Jackie after this. Don't go away. And we'll come back. Let's go to line number two. Sherry, you're on the air. Oh, good morning, Patty. How are you today? Not too bad. Thanks. How are you doing? Um, not too bad, thanks. I'm just following up now. The doctor that uh, called in had a lot of good points because uh, our personal experience this week was horrific at the uh, ER in the health science. My dad is uh, 84 years old, chronic illnesses. He has terminal lung issues. He's just getting over double pneumonia. He's, you know, he's caught a lot of bad breaks with... Uh, medications that cure one thing but cause another and the reason we ended up there is because the medication to clear a double pneumonia recently caused issues with tendonitis and he had a fall and anyways he had a doctor who left the province who you know at the end of it voiced how frustrated he was with the whole system and Lucky enough, or unlucky for him for all these chronic illnesses, he did get a doctor uh, fairly quickly. And uh, we're very thankful for her because she's been phenomenal. But uh, we had to go to the ER because they suspected a uh, possible blood clot uh, from a folly. Excuse me, he took. Anyways... um, you know, he was very reluctant to go in there uh, just because of the situation in there. But you hear all the stories, but until you're actually sitting in there, you don't realize how horrific it is. When we went in there, um, you couldn't hardly get past the doors. Uh, they're doing renovations, so they have a makeshift area done up. Uh, he's immobile, so we had to help him into a chair and get him in there. He's compromised, so you don't want him sitting in a lot of germs. So we get in there and, and get checked through. There's people sitting on the floors, standing up, walking around with IV poles, people throwing up in the bathrooms. Anyways, we check him in. And we go outside the waiting room where they said was overflow, but around the clinic area at the health science. Uh, He's weak, he's sick, he's immobile, you know, hard enough for him to sit up. So we were waiting 10 hours before he gets in. And I, I don't blame the staff, but what the doctor who was on before me is saying is absolutely true. He has a lung specialist who's been off for personal reasons, but who also has been fantastic. But I had to get my niece to come in with a zero gravity chair uh, just so he could. We set him up in the hall and put a blanket over him in that after seven hours waiting because he just couldn't take it anymore. But there's simple things where they can put their money. For instance, in Ontario, in the waiting rooms at the hospital, they have reclining chairs. When you have a senior who's 84 years old and weak, at least put him in a reclining chair. He couldn't go to the bathroom by himself. He had to go to the women's bathroom uh, in his wheelchair with my mother to get help to use the bathroom. I mean... It's it's some of uh, 
some of it is just simple things, uh, you know, for dignity purposes that they can change in there. But, I mean, something has to give when you're, you're looking at a man who's weak, frail, possible blood clot. That's the only reason why we were there. And you're making him sit up in a hard chair for 10 hours before he gets seen to. And then after that, he had to go home and wait for a call the next morning to go back to get the ultrasound to confirm things. It makes for a long, long stretch. And when you're, whether it be uh, elderly or frail or simply unwell, 10 hours feels like 100 hours. So Absolutely. And yep. for someone who's sick and compromised, to be expected to sit in a room filled with and sick people, Patty, I'm not, you know, deflating anybody else, but there's sick people, a lot of germs, you're hearing horrific stories, people there all night get called back because their blood work came back was out of whack and told them to come in right away and they're sat in the waiting room again another five hours because they were told to come back. Yeah. And so, I mean, I guess to Phil Earl's point, you know, with healthcare monies, some of the key areas, I mean, and it's one thing to be waiting a long time in an emergency room at the Health Sciences Center, and just add to it, just think about some of the communities that don't have an emergency room open any longer. Whitburn comes to mind right away, Bonavista. Whitburn's been closed yeah. for some seven months, so attention to that is going to be extraordinarily important. The staffing issues are, they're the fundamental ones. They're the ones that grab the headlines. They're the ones that we see the impact that it has, for whether it be a wait time for in an emergency room or a wait time to see uh, someone in a collaborative care clinic or to see a specialist but again i'm so pleased this job is tough enough i'm so pleased i don't have to come up with how to spend that healthcare money because the needs are massive through every single facet of healthcare. would you like to say anything else this morning sherry before we say goodbye and take one more call uh, no, the only thing is, is you know, it's time for somebody just to come up with even simple measures to, if you know you're going in there, you have to wait long periods of time. If you have compromised people, have an area where they can wait. Have a reclining chair where they can be at least comfortable and not agitated more with, you know, the illnesses that they have. And, uh, you know, it's, it's simple, some simple things that can change a, a bathroom that can be accessible, um, you know, to save the dignity of somebody that needs help going to the bathroom. Yeah, I'll, I'll, maybe this is foolish, but I'll put it out there is even for the comfort and to be, you know, not exposed to other sick folks uh, that are sitting in an emergency room. I, you know, it's not that long ago that we stopped sending a text. If I went up to get my hair done, that I had to send a text to say I was there. You know, is it realistic? Does right. it make any sense to sit in my car uh, in the parking lot and come in when I get a text message? They give me five minutes. If I don't make it, then I get jumped again or something or other because there's got to be a better way to be warmer and more comfortable and kind of left alone to your own devices. No one wants to be gawked at when they're sick in the bed at the best of times. So I don't even know if something like that could help ease some of the stress that people are feeling when they present at an emergency room. Maybe that makes no sense, but I threw it out there anyway. Well, when you're sick enough to go in there, you don't want to come out of there sicker. Absolutely right. Uh, Sherry, I appreciate the time. I'm sorry this happened the way it did to your family, but uh, stay in touch. 
Well, I'm glad he just has someone to advocate for him sure. because those who don't, that's the really sad situation. It is. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, let's take a break for the newscast. How are we doing on the phone there this morning, David? When we come back, plenty of time to speak with you. The topic is up to you. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Jackie. You're on the air. Hey, good, mo- good morning. Uh, yesterday about 4.30, um, <clears throat> something circulated on Facebook saying that the Canning Bridge in Marystown was closing for an indefinite period of time. Yeah, the story is, is that's uh, going to start the closure is at 8 a.m. tomorrow, is my understanding. Okay. <clears throat> Well, there's a lot of people that don't have Facebook, so it would be nice to have the mayor on that, make an announcement on the news or TV or something. Dave, can we see if we can get the mayor this morning to confirm that? Okay, we'll reach out and see if we can get the mayor on to see what they know. So, of course, this is named after Patrick Canning. He was a long-time MHA in the area. So give us an idea what the impact is. So I know it's a major connection because I've driven across that bridge between the north and the south of Marystown, but it also has impact on other communities, I would imagine. So like uh, Shoal Point and otherwise. So just describe what it's going to mean. Well, Little Bay and everybody's going to have to go right around the, the come up to Crescent South, Crescent North to get to the other side. So it's going to be a lot longer of a commute. Yeah, so I don't really know if the closure is in full, like whether or not pedestrians are going to be able to make their way across that bridge, which they I have been. Pedestrians can walk across it, but no vehicles. Yeah, so there was a restriction of weight. Uh, seven or eight ton uh, restriction on that particular bridge. So Dave's right this moment actually trying to connect with the mayor so we can get filled in on the actual details of what the mayor actually knows about timing and the indefinite uh, length of time it may be closed or if there's repairs in the offing. But we'll see what we can find out. That would be wonderful. Thank you so much. Happy to do it. Thanks for this, Jackie. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, if you've ever been in the area, to cross over the Canning Bridge does make a huge difference when you are uh, talking about not only traversing between the north and south of Marystown, but yes, whether it be Little Bay or Shoal Point, the impact is going to be widespread. So we'll see if we can get the mayor to help figure it out. Uh, let's go to line number two. Charlie, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, sir. Good morning to you. Patty, before I get to, I was going to promote a book this morning. Before I get to that, I want to make a comment on... Um You've been following the earthquake thing, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, it's devastating. There was a saying, I don't know where where I read this a long time ago, that uh, 10,000 people killed is a statistic. One person is a tragedy. And I kind of got that when I saw a little girl uh, pulled from the rubble with dust on her. They dusted her off, and it so happened she was okay. But that scene uh, told it all, whereas you can hear that there's thousands killed and not have the same reaction, you know? The latest death toll that I saw was over 20,000. Yes, yes. Amazing. And the visuals, I mean, some of those, for instance, in Syria, I mean, war-torn and battered country, and now add this to it is simply a country that's in rubble. Well, when 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 you look at other parts of the world, especially in that place... I know we've got an health care crisis here, but uh, I don't know. Sometimes I think we're a little bit, uh, we we don't have any perspective on, on, on things. Uh, 
I'm waiting for a specialist. I probably won't see one for years. It'll probably take a few years off my life. I don't know. But uh, sometimes I think, uh, who am I or anybody else as an individual to expect uh, to get care immediately and so on when uh, most places in the world... uh, I'm not even close to where where we are, right? But anyway, I won't go. I won't go on with too much more of that. Well, I mean, what's right in front of you? I think most people operate in that. You know, that 10-foot world around their eyes is, you know, what you're seeing, the impact it has on you personally and your family is much more easy to understand and to fret upon or to worry about as opposed to so many devastating stories we see around the world. Not to say people don't care, but, you know, and it's not about being necessarily entirely selfish. It's looking out for number one is a go-to. You can be altruistic at the same time be worried about your own circumstances. So fair enough. Okay, I, I could comment more on that, but I'll, I'll leave it at that. Can if you want. Um, the book I'm referring to is called The Warmth, W-A-R-M-T-H, Warmth of Other Sons. It's a book by a black lady called Isabel Wilkerson. I think I got a name right there. She talks about the great migration for, of, of black people from the southern states between 1915 and I think about to 1975. It's, uh, I kind of knew a little bit about the history after emancipation, after the slaves were freed, so to speak. Uh, freed is a little bit of a, a word that uh, I, I don't know if I'd exactly go along with it. But anyway, after they were so-called freed, there was a period of reconstruction there where the United States Army was down there, the uh, Northern Army. And uh, they didn't have it too bad because uh, laws were enforced. They were allowed to vote, and uh, they were still in very poor straits, right? But this refers to the time after the uh, the troops pulled out, when the South could then go back to uh, what they really wanted to do and what they really thought of the black population. And uh, many of them, after... Uh, taking it for three or four decades, decided they couldn't take any more of it, although they liked on, uh, living where they with the freedom that they had, and they, uh, they migrated uh, to northern cities. Uh, some of the things they endured uh, uh, during that time, the early 1900s and late 1800s, uh, you couldn't you couldn't go into places. Of course, it was totally totally segregated. They weren't allowed to at the same drinking fountains, the same playgrounds. Their schools were were underfunded, understaffed to to the nth degree. Uh, they were sharecropping for people, uh, the the whites that they used to work for as slaves, and uh, they were given basically uh, nothing under under that arrangement. Uh, the sharecropper would come in after they had a good crop, and he would meet with the white owner, and he would say he would pull out his books, and he would say, "Well, we had a good year," and the guy was uh, all epped up for a while. They had a good year; he was going to do well. He would he would take us. The white guy would take half, and uh, he said, "Now let's look at the other part of this." So he would take out the fertilizer and uh, the rent and whatever else. And he'd say, I don't owe you anything, and you don't owe me anything. So we're even. This was after a good season, right? You had lynching, you would, like, like you wouldn't believe. Uh, they, they, they basically didn't get prosecuted for hanging people from trees, from lowering them into uh, burning pits, from uh, skinning them alive to making them eat their genitals. And uh, anything, any, if, if, if they looked uh, up at a, at a, at a white woman, they, they could be arrested. 
if they protested anything at all, they could be easily lynched or whatever. If you walked along the sidewalk, you stepped off the sidewalk. Uh, you could go on and on with, with with the conditions there. But anyway, when they got up north, they, they thought it was a promised land. And although it wasn't segregated in the same way, uh, of course, it it was really, really terrible up there as well. They were overcrowded. They were forced to live in certain areas, and they were underpaid, underworked, you, you name it. But anyway, it's a great book, and I'd, I'd, I'd like to recommend that to uh, anybody who's interested in uh, in a good read at this time in winter. Did you say it was called Warmth of a New Sun? Is that what I remember? No, of, of Other Suns. Warmth of Other Suns. I, I don't know where people can find it, but I, I will tell you where you can't find it, and that's in the Florida School Library. <laughs> Well, I was just going to, that, that was my next point. <laughs> exactly, Patty. Uh, you can see why they don't want black history taught. If you look at, this, uh, some blacks are calling for reparations, and some people are saying, well, the slavery has been over on uh, 200 years, over 150 years, or whatever. It didn't really end. The generational stuff that, that went on after, in, in a way, was worse than slavery because at least under, uh, they used to care for the slaves because they wanted them to work for them, and they had it better than actually when they were so-called freed. But they don't want that taught. They're afraid the, the white children, they say, will be traumatized or will be made to feel guilty, which is so much uh, baloney that you can't believe it. But anyway, to, to my Republican friends up here in Newfoundland, and, and there's lots of Newfoundlanders who would be Republicans if they were down south, I'd like to leave them with this thought. Uh, did you want to comment further on that, by the way? No, no, I just bit my tongue. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> like, literally did it. So, go, sorry, go ahead. I'll let you finish up before I have to go. Go ahead, Charlie. Uh, most of us in education would recognize that littering is a problem, and, and, and I guess all of us would. We would discourage our people, our students, to, to not litter. Nobody wants to go to a beach and set up their, uh, their equipment and that when there's litter all around them. But some people are perfectly willing to leave that for somebody else. But anyway, we, we recognize that as a problem. We can't stretch our brains enough to realize that if you litter our atmosphere with greenhouse gases, methane, uh, carbon dioxide, and so on, you're doing the same thing as littering, except you can't see it. Very often you can't smell it or whatever. But it's screwing up the world to the extent that it's 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 going to ruin this place that we uh, we we want to live in for generations. And the fact that people can't equate those two things—that littering that you can see on the ground with with uh, air pollution and so on—always boggles my my mind. But anyway, there's a letter by Ed Healy in the Telegram. I just had it sent to me. I'm not sure what copy it was. Did you get a chance to read that? No, I didn't. It's the best letter I've I've written a long, long time. And he, this is what he talks about: our, our view of the planet when we look at uh, oil versus uh, uh, sustainability and so on. We'll pick, of course, the oil almost every time. But I'd urge everybody, if they could, to get that letter from Ed, Ed Healy. He's got it down to a science, and he knows how to, very well how to put it. But anyway, that's all I want to say this morning, Patty. Appreciate the time. Thanks, Charlie. Okay, sir. Take care. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the pending verdict in the Krista Grimes trial. I don't Maybe the verdict's been offered. I'm not sure. Just, uh, don't go away. And welcome back. Let's go to line four. Colin, you're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. How are you this morning? Not too bad, you. Good, thanks. 
want to talk about the uh, Krista Grimes trial. Okay. The verdict is uh, uh, coming down shortly, I guess, sometime this morning. But uh, I just want to make some general comments about the trial. Uh, in particular, it's, uh, it should be noted, I think, that uh, Ms. Grimes didn't take the stand in her own defense, which is uh, she has a constitutional right not to do that. A lot of people probably wonder why she didn't, uh, but it has to be remembered that uh, she cannot be compelled in a criminal trial, uh, that the accused cannot be compelled to to take the stand. Uh, by, by doing that, she's... Uh, putting the full weight of the case on the Crown to prove its case beyond a reasonable doubt based on its its own evidence, in this case, the, the testimony of the complainant. Okay. So, in contrast, in a civil matter, if there was a lawsuit, if you were being sued and she was the defendant in a, in a civil action, you can be compelled to... Uh, to testify and be put under oath and questioned and cross-examined, right? So that's a big difference between the criminal justice system and the civil system. And uh, in the civil system, you're, uh, if there's a uh, statement of claim made against you, uh, you have to, generally speaking, you have to file a defense to the statement of claim. If you don't, you run the risk of having a judgment made against you. In the criminal system, you don't have to take to stand your own defense. You don't have to make any reply. You don't have to call any evidence, um, which is what she did in this case, and force the crown to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that she is in fact guilty of the of the charge that's that's alleged against her. Right. So that's just some of the differences between the criminal and the civil system. Yeah, of which there are many, and for obvious reasons. I mean, I have no idea what the verdict is going to be here, and I suppose there's no real value in the fact there's been rumors and stories floating around about several people in the public sphere, including Miss Grimes in the past. Uh, she faces a, a minimum of one year in prison if she's found guilty here. Uh, this morning, I assume that the verdict is coming down sometime this morning, so I guess we'll see what uh, the outcome will be. But it's also, I think... An interesting study in human nature when it's a woman on trial for this type of crime versus a man and the attention that the Noel Strap case got, for instance, versus this one is is something. It is. Uh, you make a very good point, actually. Uh, you know, the media has reported on it, but it's uh, for the most part, it's been crickets. This case has been moving through the system, has been delayed several times because uh, she changed uh, legal counsel in, in, in one uh, instance to get the lawyer she has now. <clears throat> but, um, you know, it, it, there hasn't been very much uh, public uh, discussion around this case, I think, outside of the media. So I think, uh, you know, you can make for that what you will. But uh, I think, generally speaking, that uh, when the situation is reversed, that it's a female accused and a male complainant, you don't get very much uh, discourse in the public. I've, look, to be honest, and I'm not sure how to even reply to some of these uh, emails on that, that this topic, but I, I suppose I'm not surprised, but I've had several emails that go something like this. Sure, what's the big deal? We know, what's the big deal? So it's okay for 
anybody in a position of authority, position of power, to have sex with someone who's under their authority, under their power in that setting at 16 years of age. It's just funny how people view that. And yes, I know the whole public conversation about, well, he'd be, he'd be deemed the luckiest kid in the school and all that. I mean, my God, that sort of trivializes a fairly serious matter. Well, absolutely. And, and you know, I noticed that um, just a comments that had been made about uh, Ms. Grimes in uh, social media by some of the students in the school, some very uh, highly uh, uh, embarrassing and pejorative statements made about her, which I will not repeat. But, you know, you're, ta- you're talking about a teacher and you're talking about your teacher, you know? Yep. And uh, obviously you and I, now when we were in school, there's no such thing as internet and social media. But I guarantee you, if I had ever made a comment about a teacher, like some of the comments that have been made on social media about that woman, my father or my mother would have took me to the woodshed no one to see the light of day for, for a year. Fair enough. You know, yeah, like, yeah, like really, there's, there's, no, there's no respect. You're talking about a teacher, man. You're talking about someone who's who's in a position of trust. She's the law looks at her. She might be only four or five years older than you if you're in high school, but the law looks at her and puts a legal uh, and ethical burden on her in the place of a parent. Yeah, I'm I'm curious to hear how this is going to play out. Uh, I know people who have been taught by Miss Grimes. And, yeah, I'm not going to repeat much of what I've heard either. And we'll wait for an actual judicial ruling on this particular incident between her, allegedly her, and a young fellow who was 16 at the time, now 21. Uh, appreciate this, Colin. Have a nice weekend. Thanks, Patty. Take care. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. Right, let's keep going. Let's go to line number one. Eliza, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. How are you? Very well. How about you? That's good. I just uh, called to talk about our public meeting that's uh, coming up on Wednesday of this week. Next week, I should say. February the 15th, 7 p.m. at Discovery Collegiate in Bonavista. And I want to encourage uh, local councils, councillors, service districts, organizations, and residents uh, of the Bonavista Peninsula to please come out and share their concerns because there are many and they're great concerns and we need them addressed we need them talked about and we need to go forward to uh to government and get some serious uh serious talks about what is happening on the tip of the banavista peninsula and so what are some of the thoughts you're bringing to the meeting eliza uh could you say that again what are some of the thoughts or concerns or areas you'd like to focus on yourself when you attend the meeting well well the doctor situation is one uh, our responses to to why those the, these several doctors are not working from our hospital, and the concerns of the people with with the hospital closed, and we feel it did not need to close because we could have been stabilized, and that if we were stabilized with those several doctors that were interested in coming uh, to work from from our hospital then that could have relieved a lot of pressure on the residents of the area who are actually, like there's a lot of fear and panic when they know the hospital is closed, wondering if it's going to be closed. Like it's an awful feeling that the fears are genuine and we feel like, Patty, 
Like, why did this have to be when it could have relieved so much stress on the recruiters, they could, and it could have relieved a lot of stress on GB Cross Memorial because people wouldn't have to be directed so much to Clarenbaugh if our hospital was open. And we feel that uh, we can present things that it could have been open, it should have been open, but it wasn't. And why not? Why not? What is going on? So, like, we're, we're, we're very serious, and we feel that, um, some of us feel that it was almost looked on as, like, so what's the big deal? Like, it's happening throughout the province, throughout the country, and it is. It is. I, we all know that there's a shortage of physicians in the province and elsewhere. We know that recruitment and retainment is very difficult. And we also know, like I said in the last, uh, when I was on last, and you agreed, this was happening for more than 20 years. And it seems like now, where, where we've reached such a critical uh, point in health care, that everybody's scrambling to do something. When it could have been done a long time ago, and it can be done now in certain areas. I think the reason why that the people on this peninsula right now are kind of going to act up a little bit more. We wait it and we wait it and we wait it, but it's because those doctors were ready. Like, how many places on this island right now do you hear people say or um, the mayors say or, or Eastern Health say, you know, there's, there's uh, doctors wanting to work in your community. We don't hear it, but we hear it with Bonavista, and why aren't they doing it? I, I don't know. I and don't know nor, nor have I ever heard any really specific stories about what doctor and what's kept that doctor from moving to your community or somewhere on the peninsula. Like, I hear the vagaries tossed around about it, but I don't know if I've ever heard any real specific. Some of these uh, examples, whether it be a doctor that is now signed on full-time in the Conegra Peninsula and the story coming from Belle Island and the gentleman who was willing to practice on Fogo Island. There were some very specific and back and forth and understanding both sides of the issue. I haven't really heard much about Bonavista. Do you have an example you can share about a doctor that was willing to come but didn't because of one thing or another? Well, I, I, can't, I, can't, I don't like sharing anything unless I know exactly what I'm talking about. But I, I, I will say this. We were kind of puzzled when we heard that there were several doctors wanting to work uh, from the Bonavista Hospital. So some of us, when we heard it, like you can hear a lot. Is it true? Is it partially true? Is it whatever? If you don't know, you just let it slide for a while. But we figured if, if it was true, you would probably hear the minister saying, you know, there, we, we have been talking to some doctors who are interested uh, for Bonavista area, and there's some things to work out. We, we can't promise it. But something... But there was nothing. There was nothing. Nothing said uh, because, uh, like, wouldn't you think that they would say something about uh, we're working on something for Bonavista area, the, like the Bonavista Hospital Healthcare Center? What it uh, It's puzzling. But you know something? I believe in getting to the bottom of something. And if we can't get to the bottom of something as simple as this then we're in a mess to try to get to the bottom of uh, Muscat Falls and Churchill Falls and all of this because 
I, I, you know, there's something going on here. There is something going on. And there's a lot I could say and mm-hmm. a lot I want to say. And I can't believe I'm holding back so much, but I will. And that when the time is right, it will all come out. That's all. Now, I'm starting to get a little, bam, a little bit rambunctious here now this morning. So Let her fly. What? Let her fly. Not right now. Okay, when it flies, enough. let me tell you, when it flies, it will fly. And I hope that the person that I'm talking about right now is listening, or they have a listener that is going to tell this individual. Yeah, because I'm not 100% sure what we're talking about. But give us the details, the where, the when for the upcoming meeting. Okay. Uh, Discovery Collegiate, Mana Vista, 7 p.m., Wednesday, um, February the 15th. And we're encouraging... You know, just just come out because there's a lot of concerns and a lot of concerns that needs to be addressed. And we got to keep going until they are addressed. And somebody should be held accountable for something. I appreciate the time. Pardon? I appreciate. Oh, you have more to say? Go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. I no. I think I've already said too much. But uh, but that's okay. I still got a lot to say. But but please come out. Uh, the residents on the Bonavista Peninsula and have your say. Thank you. Have a nice okay. weekend, Eliza. Thank you. You too. All righty. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Uh, let's go. Here we are at the just about the end of week two with the Mun Munfa strike. And we're going to say good morning to the executive director of external affairs at the Students' Union. That's John Harris. Morning, John. You're on the air. Hi. How's it going, Patty? Doing grand. How are you doing? I'm doing excellent. I just wanted to call to talk about the uh, Mun Ra- Munfa rally that's coming up at 12 o'clock, same time as last week. Uh, it's going to be at 12 o'clock at the Arts and Administration Building. Uh, Munsu will be leading a march to collect all the pickets uh, around 11.15, and we're going to make our way around the, the picket line and, and stop back at, to, be the, to be there for 12. Uh, the rumors and rumbles about how this strike is going to come to a conclusion or when that may be, is that a prevalent story on the picket lines that, you know, probably at least two more weeks and all the relations that that would have with reading week? Well, nobody knows really what, uh, you know, how things are going to go. Always, you know, depends on what, uh, you know, the parties are able to agree on. Uh, We do know that this, you know, administration has been very stubborn in their public communication. They have chosen to, uh, you know, put out things like that their uh, tweet about collegial governance that, you know, we already have collegial governance. So it's, it, it becomes a little incredulous when you're when you have one party trying to convince the other party that we are already have all the things that you're looking for. So that that doesn't bring a lot of hope. But, you know, this 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 uh, this picket line is committed. You know, it had a 90 percent, uh, you know, yes, vote for the strike. It had 93 percent turnout. And they, you know, have been consistent with their energy and with uh, student support. So I, I think that, you know, whatever whatever it takes, uh, that that's going to be what we're going to hear from Munfa. 
as a member of the student union, I think there's a, been a couple of stories where, of course, as an umbrella organization, you have voiced your support for the faculty association. But some students are actually speaking out, you know, what the impact is, the real impact on them. And maybe a little bit of this faculty versus faculty. I want to pick your brain on that. Because if the nursing students return to their clinical placements, but not so much for others who need those types of uh, clinical placements as well, like someone who's about to graduate with a social work degree or someone who's about to graduate with a degree that could be involved in mineral exploration, they're thinking, hey, if it's good for the nurses, why isn't it good for me? Why are they more important than I am? Do you hear much of that? What do you say to those students who feel that way? Well, you know, I, I think that everybody should be going back to classes. I think everybody should be getting back to their placements. I think that this, this strike could have been avoided. This, uh, you know, 14 months ago, Montva had a proposal, a reasonable proposal for the, you know, administration. And they've chosen to stonewall ever since. They, you know, they pushed back, uh, you know, conciliation. They, you know, they, they uh, uh, stonewalled until, up until the winter time where, uh, you know, it's, you know, cold out there. And they tried to discourage the picketers. But, you know, we need to get back to classrooms. And the, way, the only way to do that is to give a, a fair deal to Munfa. Yeah, I, I'm just wondering if, you know, if you've had some discourse with students who get your point, but are also thinking, should we not be pushing for either it's all hands out or all hands in? And I know you said quite clearly that, you know, the strike could have been avoided and it shouldn't have happened. You want to get back into the classroom. I'm just wondering if you hear any sort of pushback against the student union support and maybe not speaking up on behalf of those students that feel like they've been you know, treated as second-class citizens, I'll put it. Maybe that's not the right way to put it, but that's the way I did. So anyway, uh, anything else you want to say this morning, John? Yeah, well, the, so the come come on down to show your support at 12 o'clock at uh, the Arts and Admin. We need a fair deal, and we need one now. Uh, and, yeah, we, we need to get back to the class, and teachers want to be back in the classroom. Last one. I've asked many people this who are involved in the strike one form or another. Is When is the thought that... If it extends beyond this date, that the winter semester is actually lost. Well, if that does come to it, we're going to need full refunds. We're going to need, uh, you know, a, a whole lot of action from administration to, to make up for this. Um, so, you know, I, I really hope it doesn't get to that point. But we'll be pushing hard to make sure that uh, admin comes to the table, gives a fair deal, and uh, gives compensation to students that were affected. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, I have a university student at home. So uh, I guess more specifically, I'm wondering, does the student union think that, for instance, if this extends to or beyond reading week, that that constitutes a lost semester? You couldn't possibly cram in all the curriculum fairly? Uh, I I don't don't think we have a number on that, on what constitutes a... Uh, you know, a uh, end of semester. I know that professors, when they do get back to work, will be working very hard with students as they've shown so much support and and will be doing their very best to make sure that, uh, you know, we can finish on time. Uh, Whatever that takes, uh, we're going to need to see a lot from admin, and I I know the professors are ready to to, to come back to to work and, and finish up the semester. Appreciate the time. It was good to meet you the other day, John. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Patty. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. That's John Harris, Executive Director of External Affairs for Memorial University of Newfoundland's Student Union. Let's keep rolling. Line number three, Minnie, you're on the air. Patty, I wonder if I could speak about the obstetrics in the, in the Gander, Grand Falls area? Sure. I, and as you know, I uh, came from Wesleyville, right? Uh, and I'm just thinking, you know, as a person that... Uh, that delivered three kids, how it would be 
if they change it from uh, the understanding is that they're going to be changing it to Grand Falls, and I'm wondering how uh, mothers are going to be able to cope with uh, Gander was an hour and a half to get into. And because the hospital down there stopped delivering children for years. And uh, also that Grand Falls is about an hour and a half. So you're now talking about to get to obstetrics if you're in labor in Grand Falls, uh, you would have to go three hours. And I'm thinking, uh, uh, how in the name of the world is that going to work? Because if you live down a place like Wesleyville, you, you know, after you've had a couple kids, you're going to labor pretty fast most times. Yeah, so, sorry, where did you come up with the three-hour Well, it's trip, hour sorry? and a half to, to Gander. Oh, if right? you're coming from Wesleyville. Oh, yes, yeah, oh, okay. easy. In the winter, probably two hours. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of confusing things here for me. So we spoke with a woman. She was really quite articulate and had a lot of numbers to back up her assertion that it should remain uh, in Gander. But for just the population itself, the population has grown a fair bit in that community versus what's going on in Grand Falls, Windsor. And, you know, it's not just about winter travel. Of course, that's an important part of the conversation. But there's so many reasons why you might need to present that the obstetrics unit when you're not even ready to give birth. I mean, both our children, we were sent home both times. So then what? So I, I drive a, an hour, say I'm just coming from Gander. I drive that hour, hour-ish. I've got the Braxton Hicks, and then they send me home. Or I'm not dialed to the point where they're, uh, they're going to keep me in the maternity ward or in the delivery area. So they send me home. So there's lots of ways where it gets a little bit more complicated than it only takes one drive. Because you might go to the hospital two or three times before they actually take you in and deliver the baby. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I mean, the cost of it, it, you know, you don't always deliver on your duty date, right? I mean, sometimes you go a week over, so you could end up having to go in and stay in a hotel somewhere. And then uh, what would happen is that uh, it would cost an awful lot of money at a pocket, you know? So maybe then the government would have to pay for people to go into the hotels because people uh, don't have money. And, Patty, I can... uh, I I already had a, a relative years ago that died in childbirth, right? Uh, down in uh, Greenstown, which is right next. There's another place, Greenstown, how far that would be. I can understand. I know what they're saying, that they don't need two uh, hospitals, but I wonder why they would pick Grand Falls. Is Grand Falls extending over as many communities, I wonder, as Gander? I haven't heard anybody uh, speaking out about it very much, so I thought, uh, being that I am uh, uh, someone who never forgets where she came from, I thought probably I would uh, call in and maybe they they should try to speak out a bit more because, uh, like I said many times, Patty, the squeaky wheel gets to grease. Yeah, if I remember correctly, there's also obstetrics diversion, I believe, from Labrador down to St. Anthony. Yeah, and I mean, that is even more uh, ridiculous 
in that down there, I think they they had an even worse situation in Labrador. But uh, like I say, and the, and the Labrador people have spoken out loud and clear, but I, I don't hear much from home. And I'm wondering, uh, uh, like I, I found out now uh, from relatives down there, because my parents are, are long gone down there, but I've still got sisters down there. And uh, they've told me that a lot of the older people are coming in because they don't have a doctor are actually coming in and resettling into St. John's, right? And I'm thinking that mothers who's going to be getting pregnant are probably going to have to move too. So you can empty out the outports and uh, down there is, is just a beautiful place to me. Uh, it's almost like it's in my soul down there because I don't get down much anymore. Uh, my parents are gone and you don't have the same reason to want to go down, eh? Mm-hmm. But I think about uh, a, a mother that's in labour coming in on an ambulance or even in her own car with her husband driving in and she's got to drive all the way into into Grand Falls to, to deliver, you know, and I'm wondering... Uh, it don't seem to make much sense, and and it's too bad that Doctor Haggy is sick because I don't think they they got much. Um, they don't have a whole lot of people speaking out for them at this stage because Doctor Haggy is sick, right? He so is. I'm hoping that uh, I'm hoping that the mayors and and that down there uh, speak out a bit more loudly because they should be really. You wouldn't do that, Patty, for uh, thirty years ago if you even tried it. I mean, people down home were always very strong-willed, right? I understand the point, Minnie. I appreciate the time. Thanks for calling this morning. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Right, bye-bye. Uh, let's go and take a break. When we come back, we're going to get some confirmation or a better understanding of what's going on with the potential closure of the P.J. Canning Bridge in Marystown. Brian Keating, the mayor of the town, is on after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the mayor of Marystown. That's Brian Keating. Mayor Keating, you're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. How are you today? Great today. Thanks for asking. How about you? Uh, it was a rough, it's been a rough 24 hours, and uh, if you're all well aware, we got a little bit of bad news on uh, the Paddy Canning Bridge that connects the south side to the north side today. Uh, we are now deemed as an unsafe uh, crossing, and the bridge is closed to uh, vehicle traffic as of 10 o'clock this morning. So what exactly is it? You know, so there's always been a, a weight restriction on that bridge. I believe it was eight ton. You correct me if I'm wrong. So what's the rationale for closing it now? Has something further deteriorated with the bridge? Well, uh, the, actually, the restriction went on a couple of, about a month and a half ago, roughly, that it went to 10 ton, and then it went to eight ton because um, of other investigations. So they, may, they stepped up their investigation, had a third-party analysis got done on the bridge by an independent engineering firm on the structurals, steel, and the civil side of the bridge. And uh, yesterday at noon, the results came back that the bridge failed its inspection and was deemed unsafe for transportation. Okay. So, you know, we've seen, you know, bridge work is part of the road work approach. You know, all the gas taxes are collected. It's not just to pave roads, whatever. It's also to attend to bridges. When you have something like, for instance, I remember when they had to replace the lift bridge in Placentia, and that was a big convoluted mess anyway, how that all unfolded. But that was 100% required. This 
one is a matter of convenience. Do you happen to know whether or not there's a plan to replace the bridge? Because there are different circumstances. I know it's absolutely frustrating whether you live in the north or south of Marystown or in uh, Shoal Point or Little Bay or whatever. Have they told you, you know, if it's closed forever or they're going to do work on it or going to replace it or anything of the like? First thing I'd like to correct you is not for convenience, it's actually safety. Just say if we had a incident on our other access to the south side, uh, that would leave us uh, stranded uh, a 38-kilometer drive off Tribune to get there. So it's not not only for convenience, it's actually a safety issue as well. So, yeah, and uh, talking with the minister's office and Department of Transportation, as you're all aware, this uh, started to revolve yesterday around noon, so it's very preliminary right now. But uh, the talks and uh, the information we got so far all indicated that uh, the minister's uh, going to give me an update later on the day. Talking with transportation, it looks uh, the bridge is going to be uh, replaced, but it's going to be a timely, timely, uh, timely concern. I guess it's not going to. It's not something's going to happen overnight. It's uh, engineering and you know the waterworks, and there's so many uh, variables that got to be studied and done before the bridge even gets construction space started. But we have been uh, uh, not in writing per se, but uh, verbally said that the bridge will be replaced. Fair enough. And convenience was the wrong word. I w- didn't mean to trivialize what the bridge means in the area. So fair ball. Uh, in addition to not just travel across the bridge, and this comes from a resident of Marystown, but when we talk about uh, traveling around the community, whether it be access to the PJ Canning Bridge, there's also what apparently is a notoriously dangerous intersection at McGettigan and Villemarie and Harris. What can you tell us about that and how is council considering trying to make that a safer area? Well, right now, our goal is always the safety of our residents out of uh, Marystown and the Bjorn Peninsula, of course. And, yeah, there's been preliminary talks, not preliminary talks, but several meetings with the Department of Transportation. There have been several studies done on it. So right now, my main focus now for the next uh, uh, foreseeable future is to get a safety uh, strategy put in place for fire, life safety, uh, transportation, ambulance, and uh, policing for that area. So right now, for the foreseeable future, unfortunately, being very crucial uh, part of the McGettigan Boulevard, the lighting system, our main focus for the next several days and several weeks is going to be figuring out a safety uh, procedure for the residents of Marystown. And I know it's not necessarily a Marystown-specific issue, but what can you tell us about the floor spar mine, if you, if you know anything more than I do about it? And the future no, of all the only thing I can tell you about the floors for our mine in St. Lawrence are our hearts are with the residents of St. Lawrence and uh, and the residents of the Bjorn Peninsula because the residents from all over the Bjorn Peninsula worked at this mine and is a very another clog and a very important part of the facilities and the residents of Marystown and the Bjorn Peninsula to make sure the mine opens. So all I can say on that, we're our hearts right to the mine. We want the mine to open and we need it to open to help the Bjorn Peninsula survive as well. Yeah, because I know someone from Marystown who actually worked at that mine, which is why I put the question to you. So then there's also been some of the issues surrounding uh, jobs at the shipyard and whether or not the, and I don't know the answer to this question, but when there was some sort of move towards it being a, a hub for aquaculture, can you tell What's the status of what's going on with that? Well, right now, uh, it's called the Mar Base now. It was, right, uh, Mar Base. Paul Antle uh, uh, several years ago. Uh, he's done some uh, refit work there now. Uh, he announced a couple of weeks ago that he had an indigenous partner now for lumpfish uh, 
facility be built during rest uh, right now. That's all I can uh, tell you on that. We're working close with him. Uh, Mr. Antle gives his updates as, uh, as soon as he gets from any developments. But right now, the Mar base is still right now in the very preliminary stages of any kind of development as far as we can see meeting and talking with Mr. Antle. Fair enough. Anything you'd like to offer about uh, something in Marystown you'd like your residents to know more about? The biggest thing I like to tell the residents, I want to thank you for their support. They've been uh, reaching out to me all through the night and saying that they uh, understand it's a crucial time and as a sensitive matter for the town of Marysan and their support is so much appreciated because we got a great town and a great peninsula and they uh, want to let them know that we're going to, their safety is most important and the financial feasibility of the residents of Marystown and surrounding areas uh, number one on our list and uh, in the foreseeable future for the next couple of weeks we'll be giving more updates on a daily basis as soon as we get information there's a full disclosure policy with this new council and we're going to continue that on the path forward i appreciate the time this morning mayor Keating. thank you thank you very much sir take, take care great. you too bye-bye that's uh, mayor brian Keating in the town of marystown all right just about time to get to the news this in reference to an emailer who's asking why Regardless of the price changes, up or down, coming from the PUB, we know that there was a bunch of moves last night, for instance, on diesel, down uh, almost or around 11 and a half cents, is why the prices are different in possibly even the same community. Because the PUB only tells, tells the retailers what the maximum is they can charge. They can charge less if they see fit in an effort to try to bring more customers to their pumps and then consequently in to grab your chips and pop and uh, beef jerky or whatever else you grab at the gas station. Don't grab the sushi. Let's take a break. When we come back, tons of time to speak with you. Don't go away. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the PC member for Stephenville Port of Port. That's Tony Wakeham. Tony, you're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. I just wanted to uh, reach out and have a couple of comments on the new funding, health funding that uh, was announced from Ottawa in the last couple of days. Sure. The, uh, there's certainly lots of numbers being thrown around. The, the premier indicated in an article I read that it was a big win for Newfoundland and Labrador. I don't see that. Most of the, his colleagues across the province have expressed their disappointment with the numbers. Certainly it wasn't anywhere near what they thought they were going to get. And it comes down to is what, in actual fact, is this money going to be used for? Will this address the significant workplace challenges that we see in our healthcare system right now with nurses, for example, and other health professions? Will it actually see the 136,000 people in this province get access to a family physician? Will it see the people in my region, seniors and others, not have to pay $35 to, to visit a nurse practitioner? Will it open those long-term beds that remain closed in our province? So there's lots of things that are currently happening in our province, and people are waiting to see how this funding is going to address some of those issues. I, I totally get it. Um, I mean, the needs, everyone knows them. We see them. We hear them. We talk about it uh, just about every single day, certainly on this program we do. I don't, I'm glad it's not my job, as I've mentioned many times before, about how to evaluate or adjudicate where that money gets spent. But in addition to 
human resources because that's the point made earlier by Dr. Phil Earl when he called the program and I absolutely understand that. If you had your druthers, Tony, how much of it would be spent in an effort to reduce interaction with the healthcare system, more preventative medicine, the social determinants of health because short-term uh, short solutions are important but long-term fixes are underway. I mean, we've been talking about the health accord for quite a long time here now. So, if you had the decision-making authority here, how much gets spent in the effort to reduce healthcare expenditures long-term? And that, that's an excellent point, Patty, because that is where we ought to be going. But it's going to take a while to get there. And unfortunately, right now in our province, we have a significantly elder population who many have chronic diseases. And so to change our health outcomes, we're going to have to start absolutely and put money towards that. But we also have to recognize that many people in our province have a need now to be able to access services. And some of this stuff is basic services. So I believe that we certainly have to look at how we offer primary health care and how we deliver it. And access to those services has to be one of the top priorities, as well as the concept of, you know, the clean drinking water and all of the other social determinants of health, the housing and uh, income and jobs. Those are all key elements that a government has to have a plan for and ought to have a plan for. You're absolutely right. One of the disappointing parts of this particular announcement is the bilateral agreement piece. While it's a lot of money, some $749 million over 10 years, the problem is that it's one time. It would have been nice to see that type of funding added to the Canada Health Transfer on a permanent basis. Because one of the challenges is we spend this money towards implementing programs. What happens when the money runs out and the federal government decides you're no longer getting it? Does that mean we're back to square one again and find ourselves exactly where we are today? So that's one of the disappointments in it. Also, like we spoke with David Brazel one day this week. Uh, of course, he's the leader of the party. And, you know, references to forming partnerships. And, you know, it kind of went right through me as opposed to what I should have done to say, what does that mean? So maybe you can help elaborate if you know where Mr. Brazel's going because I did mention off the top of the show today that there's a lot of talk about more and more private offerings to deal with backlogs in the healthcare system. There's a story that's in the news today about one particular clinic in uh, Laval, Quebec, the Duval Clinic. They've quadrupled the number of cases they've done in that clinic for profit uh, over the last couple of years. Where does your party come down on more and more private offerings? Because this is going to be the major healthcare conversation as we try to get through some of the shortage issues. I have said before, and I will continue to say it, that our public health care system has to be our main priority. However, as you know, we have a partnership now. Doctors that practice in private clinics as fee-for-service physicians are actually running private businesses. They just bill MCP and there's a fee rate set up and negotiated for all their services. So in a sense, they're already, that model already exists. The challenge becomes is how do you incorporate any kind of model so that you have providers available and there when people need them. 
So it's there will always be a combination of that private system. But how do you maximize out the benefit for the people of the province of Newfoundland and Labrador? That's got to be the key because it can't simply be throwing out one to get to another. It has to be how do we make sure that the people of Newfoundland and Labrador are getting the best value for our healthcare dollars and getting the service when they need it. Sure. My number one concern with, you know, more and more private, and you're right, you mean if I go to a subcontractor doctor, that's basically what it is. If I go to the dentist, that's more private offering. I can get private blood collection. There's lots of things that are examples of private inside our universal healthcare world. But if it starts to expand the way it is, even in that one clinic, that's more doctors out of the public system, which does not make things better. It simply does not. It might feel okay if I've got $25,000 to go to the Duval Clinic to get my hip replaced, but the doctor that did it was probably at one point in the public system. Uh, anyway, well, that, that's a big one. Uh, also, big story in your region, there's been lots of chatter on it the last number of weeks or, or maybe months, is World Energy GH2. The protesters, now it looks like the company's gone to court to get an injunction to shut down the protests in mainland. What do people say to you? Because the big book for some has been Mr. Risley's quote that there's a small number of people opposed to the project that doesn't reflect in his polling, but it is reflected in the local group's polling. What are people saying to you, Tony? Patty, there are lots of people in the uh, region that are, have grave concerns about this project. There are some who are totally opposed. Yes, they. Uh, there are some who are all for but there's also a lot of people who have identified serious concerns about issues, environmental issues in particular, and, their, and the protection, for example, of their watershed areas. And those are legitimate concerns, and they are not to be dismissed by anyone. What they need to do is find solutions for those, for every issue that's identified. I've been trying to work with local service districts to turn around and find solutions. So when an issue gets raised, is there a solution possible? And we're very early in this process. There are issues around concerns around the whole crown land piece and the maps that government put out showing communities that are included in the green zones up for, uh, up for development by uh, windmill companies. This raises anxiety levels among people. So we need the government to turn around and talk to the people of the region and communicate with them better. And when a company is out doing work, as is going on now, you know, have your inspectors out to make sure that the work you agreed to do for the company to do is being done properly. Last week, I met with Minister Davis, and I also coordinated a conference call with the chair of the local service district in mainland and the clerk to talk to officials, lead officials in the Department of Environment to talk about the watershed issue, for example. And to get the reassurance of what exactly the department is doing to protect that watershed. And it was a good meeting and a good conversation. I hope to set up a similar meeting next week with the chair and vice chair of the local service district in Piccadilly Slant. But that's where this breakdown has happened. There's been little communication by government, lots of communication from the company. But with all due respect, the people in the region want to hear from their government. They want to hear from the ministers, and they want to see people on the ground to make sure that what the government has given permission to be done 
is actually being carried out in that fashion. So that means, yes, it's not talking about every day you have to have somebody out inspecting, but it just means a presence there and a communication back with the people. Uh, the water issue confuses me a little bit, I'll have to admit. You know, Mr. Risley says the water problem in mainland precedes his work on that land to put up that meteorological evaluation tower, but he went on to say that if there's a water concern, the company would offer people who are experts in that field, scientists, engineers, whatever, to go in and do the work and whatever needs to be reclaimed to be done, and it hasn't been taken upon by the community and or the folks who have have those concerns and look drinking water is a major league concern what would be your message to folks that if there's help offered to help figure that out why not just do that at least take that baby step towards you know whatever the end result will be and that was that was why we had the meeting last week to do exactly that to sit down and talk to government to understand the processes that are being followed they have an application in to protect that brook as a secondary water source so the government is going to fast track that application but it's also about government monitoring the conditions of the brook and the sampling from the brook all of those things so it's not it's those are the things that are important and i i believe that the the chair and the clerk certainly came away from that meeting with the department with a better understanding of exactly what the department is doing to monitor the situation. I can't speak for the LSD in terms of what they will accept or not accept in terms of the offer from the company. That's up to the, the local service district to do that. But certainly what we can do, as you suggested, is offer solutions. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm not out there, so it's not. I've got no particular skin in that game, but I'd like to get down to the brass tacks of what's going on with the water. If it could be fixed and the company's willing to pay for it, I'd be jumping on it. But that's only me, and I don't have any say because it's not my part of the province. Even though it's a provincial type of discussion required about these wind projects, hydrogen or otherwise. Uh, final thoughts to you, Tony, before I take a break. And Patty, going back on my district, there was good news as well today. Uh, their announcement there on the French immersion program being uh, reinstated for next year in the steam mill area but the key for the people in the region and for myself is for government to recognize the historical and cultural significance of the french culture in that part of our province and to look at a way of making sure that that program is offered permanently so that's where we'll be focused yeah a lot of relief and i, I think i used the incorrect numbers off the top i thought i heard the district say that it went from 13 to 23 someone in the area who's been fighting for french immersion said they were at 18 and now it's moved to 23 consequently they will have it and that is good news uh, thanks for the time tony thank you patty take care bye-bye tony wakem is the pc member for stevenville port of port let's take a break oh there you go there is someone in the queue wants to talk about world energy gh2 reg wants to talk about doctors out in rural newfoundland and labrador don't go away welcome back to the show let's go line number two reg here on the air uh, hello patty hi uh, thanks for uh thanks for taking my call and uh before i started i just want to thank you for uh, responding there you sent me an email about the last time we talked about the uh, locking up doors at the emergency. So thanks for that, by the way. No problem. And uh, no, I just uh, uh, heard Eliza on there. Okay, uh, I'll touch on one thing from yesterday. Uh, Wayne Taylor actually called open line yesterday and, and he gave you a breakdown, I think, of, of uh, the development of uh, healthcare, whatever, on the bottom of the peninsula. Yeah, it was quite good, informative. Yeah, it was, really. And But one thing I'd like to bring up, my wife actually worked at Donaldson uh, Healthcare and uh, she went through the changes with um, financials out there, and uh, she actually worked in the financial part of it. And uh, you know, when before they went to uh, financials, 
autonomous and healthcare operating the black every year. And after they moved to the peninsula, from that point forward, they operated in the red. So, I mean, there's something to be said, like Wayne said, big is not always better, right? No, and I mean, there are a bunch of different... Uh, representative groups inside of healthcare, maybe not with the same cloud as that board was structured back that Wayne described, but that's fascinating. They operate in the red until they went to the public sector, or pardon me, went to the regional health authority. Yep. Yep, How about that? Yeah. Well, anyway, why I called your Eliza on a bit earlier, and I think she sort of uh, panicked, but uh, anyway, uh, you were asking her about those doctors that I guess somebody will figure they're phantom doctors in some way that, that are waiting to go to work in Bonavista. Yeah, and, I was just uh, curious if she could offer me uh, an example because, yeah. like, I gave her some examples where we heard concrete uh, remarks yeah. coming from Belle Island, Fogo Island, and, yeah. and Conagra Peninsula, for instance. So yeah, I was just trying to understand what the yeah. rationale well, was. Well, we, we, we know those doctors exist because I'll tell you why. Early December, uh, the town council of Bonavista had a virtual meeting with the uh, I, from what I can gather, is the, it was the Minister of Health and the Premier, and they had some discussions. And after that meeting, those physicians that we talked about, like we don't want to name names, that's, those physicians, that's up to themselves if they want to come forward. Sure. But uh, they, yeah, they were made an offer. And that offer in, in early December amounted to 70, 70% of the pay that an ER doctor in Carnival will get. That's what it amounted to. And those doctors turn down that offer. So those doctors do exist. They're okay. out there, mm-hmm. but they're not coming to Bonavista, or they're not coming anywhere in rural Newfoundland, by the way, for less paid than they're going to get, like, an hour and a half away or whatever. And, I, I mean, you're talking about, you're not talking about a few bucks here. We're talking about a substantial amount of dollars, right? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, so is this all because of the designation of, uh, what do they call it, level one or level three? Category A, B, yeah, okay. Yes, it is. It yeah. is. It's all because of categories. But, uh, right? And so now I noticed in the, in the media the last few days since uh, uh, the, this uh, been information been coming out from the council in Bonavista and whatever, that the uh, minister now uh, of health is uh, talking about, okay, we're going to consider a collaborative care clinic for Bonavista. Well, that's fine. And, I mean, that's part of the new board and everything else, and I can see where that's going, and, 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 I mean, I got no problems with that stuff. But, Teddy, we got a major problem, and Sister Elizabeth Davis has identified this on a couple of occasions now in the media. The problem we got is how do we get to the collaborative care clinic? Because, I mean, we know right now there's there's eight collaborative care clinics that have been established in province. Four of those is in Metro in, in St. John's, in that area. Now, if uh, where are you going to get those people? If if they were trying, the government said it's a pilot project. Okay, so in, they knew that there was no uh, physicians in certain areas of the province. We were having troubles everywhere. So, I mean, when they created those pilot projects, why didn't you create a pilot project in Mount Vista right from the get-go and say, hey, okay, let's uh, go out there and uh, see, what, see if we can help those people out. Because, I mean, we know that a lot of the physicians who are going to those clinics are already practicing, but they're moving into the clinic. So are we really recruiting people, new people, or are we just moving them around in the system? Because right now we have a shortage of family doctors in Bonavista. So if, if it happens that, say, 
okay, in a year's time or two years' time, we're going to create a clinic. So what are they going to do? They're going to throw the band of this, uh, and what are they going to do? Recruit the doctors that are here, the couple doctors that are here, private practice, and in the clinic. I mean, really, is that going to help anybody? Short answer is not really. I mean, and that's long been the concern, hasn't it? So it's one thing to open up a collaborative care clinic. The clinic that I finally got in as a patient, one of the doctors there closed their practice, I believe it was in Mount Pearl, and just moved to this clinic. So unless we're adding to the system, we're just shifting uh, human resources around. So I understand the concept, and I do really believe a collaborative care clinic makes a lot of sense because there's a lot of times you present yourself for some treatment or diagnosis where you don't need a doctor necessarily. You might just need the nurse practitioner or exactly. the licensed practical nurse or whatever the case may be. So I think it works in concept, but unless we're adding bodies to the system, we're not really doing a whole, whole lot to deal with the numbers of people that don't have a family doctor. Look no further than the fact that it wasn't that long ago the NLMA told us there was 125,000 without. Now it's 136,000 without. So exactly. not working the way it's intended. And Patty, not only that, like the clavicle care clinic, it's, like I said, it, it, it's a, it, it can be a good thing. It can, it can be a real good tool, but, okay, yes, I know the concept of, okay, open a clinic, and this is going to reduce the number of people at the ER, right? We know that, because somebody who's got a cold can go to the clinic. But the bottom line is you're not going to eliminate uh, the emergency people. So you still don't have that doctor's in the emergency. So whether you open a clinic or not, you're not going to help, you know, get a get an ER doctor. Yeah, no, you're right. Make sense. Yep. So I mean, all this and and, and like I said, what's the timeline of opening the clinic? Now in Van Lista, is it two years? Is it a year? Is it three years? Five years? I mean, so what what do people do in the meantime? Right now, we're in a situation now where basically all this month, our hospitals closed, next month, there's basically no coverage. We got people here. I mean, like Liza said and other people said, you know, uh, people are stressed to the limit. People got health issues and waiting for surgeries and everything else. I mean, something could happen tomorrow, and what are you going to do? You can't get to the hospital. Right? Yep. Understood. Right on. Appreciate so the I time. I just want to bring those things up this off. And thanks for your time. Anytime, Reg. Stay in touch. Okay. 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 Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, let's see you very quickly before we go to the news. And Clara, appreciate your patience. I want to give you a due time, so I don't want to squeeze you up against the news here. Just someone just sent me a fascinating poll, almost completely irrelevant, but someone's asked me to do an interview on it, is come Super Bowl weekend, you actually hear more about the want to drop Roman numerals than any other time of the year. So it's Super Bowl 57 as opposed to Super Bowl LVII. Someone actually wants me to do an interview about it. Let's drop the Roman numerals. Okay. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, Clara, you're there to talk about World Energy GH2. Don't go away. Your VOCM mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Clara. You're on the air. Yes, uh, Patty. Uh, I'm calling about windmills. Sure. Uh, out in the mainland, there's one lady there. Uh, she's really against it, really. And uh, I don't know why. There, there, there's no very little pollution. Out in Seymour, we had we've been hit with the mill closing, the base closing, the mills closed twice. We've been hit hard. That bring some work here. 
and it'll bring work for them people out there that wants to work, you know. But anyway, she haven't got a sweet clue. She don't even, she don't know what she's talking about. You know, and then add to it, you know, the Stephenville Airport and the confusion surrounding it. So that's one thing that has been confusing to me is that in an area that could really use a little economic uh, uptick, this can indeed provide some of those jobs that people would love to have in the area. Uh, sometimes I'm a little bit lost on exactly why they oppose it. It basically boils down to, and I, you know, in all fairness, I asked a protester who called yesterday, I said, is it as simple as you just don't want these windmills in your backyard? She said, yes. Yeah, well, there you go. See, that'll tell you right there. Now, you know, there's a lot of, you know, that's going to bring work for the people here, you know. But there's only, she said 85% is against it out there. That bull, she said, there's no such way that there's 85 or nothing. I talked to people, I talked to one peop, one person out there, told me some of them are scared to go out and they have to go to work. Yeah, and I can't speak to that because I have no earthly idea. But, And, you know, that seems to be a bit more of the kerfuffle than anything about the project specifically is Mr. Risley says X number are in support. The protesters say that's not true. So there's been a lot of back and forth on that. I'm not so sure that's the be-all and end-all. But if they have questions, then between the government and the minister responsible, which would be Andrew Parsons, and the company, if they have questions, they need answers to them, and they should be forthcoming. But... You know, I'm not sure what's going to go on here, but it seems to be. I'm I'm really not quite sure exactly how many people are for or against it, and it does matter in some respect because a social license is part of decision making on behalf of government. But yeah, anyway, they're they're quite loud about it. I wonder what the court's going to rule about an injunction to stop the protests in mainland as well. I don't think because they they've done damage to their equipment and everything. You know. That's not that's not good. That's you know that'll show you what they're what they're up to. You know. Yeah, and they also go on to say that they are not responsible for that. They said when the equipment left the site, it wasn't damaged. So yeah. again, I'm not out there, so I don't know. Yeah, that's a crack. But anyway, you know, something to do, something to give people work. You know, originally also offered to check their water, have somebody come out and do their water. And I'd say if they were, they got, I've heard from a person out there, they got sore running into a brook. You know, uh, I don't know, but she don't know what she's talking about to start with. And uh, she's just making a noise. That same fellow telling me about sore running out in the brook, he said she's a bit of a mouthpiece. Exact words, he said she's a bit of a mouthpiece. So, you know, what is, you know, I don't know. It's big work for people, and like you said, the airport, you know, we're waiting on something for that. There's nothing about that. I don't know what that's going to go ahead or not. Or, you know, like I say, Stephen, look at that. There's a lot of men and women that worked on the outport of Port Peninsula from the mainland Cape St. George right in that worked at the Ernest Simon Air Force Base. Mm-hmm. My uh, father had two men. There was a bad accident there one time on Abrams Cove Hill. My, my father had two of his men that got killed in that accident that worked on the base. Well, what, what happened? What accident are we talking about? Oh, that's way back in the uh, in the early 60s. Okay. There was a, a, a van that used to haul people. It was a nine-passenger van, and he had an oil truck hit him on Abrams Cove Hill. There was a few men got killed there. Okay. Four of them were dead, man, yeah. That's years ago. Yeah. 
Well, I appreciate the time. Now, inevitably, there are going to be people in full-throated support of the project, and there's obviously going to be people opposed. How many that constitutes, I have no earthly idea, but there's a lot of back and forth on it. Yeah, she said 85%, but that's more. There's more for it, I'd say, than what there is against it. Yeah, but uh, I don't know. It's always one person, see, who'll try and upset the apple cart all the time, you know, and... I can get on two tomorrow and protest against it, you know. They're out there on stopping the people from doing their work, and then they're doing damage to equipment. So that'll tell you right there what they're up to, you know, what what sense they got. But anyway, thank you for your time, Patty, and I appreciate you doing a good job. I appreciate your time, sir. Thanks. Have a nice weekend. You too, buddy. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. All right, let's keep rolling. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the Liberal Member of Parliament representing the folks of St. John's East. That's Joanne Thompson. Good morning, Joanne. You're on the air. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning to you. So, oh, thanks. Sorry, Patty. I was waiting. I thought there was a question. Um, actually, thank you for taking the call. I, I uh, won't take a lot of your time today. But Just I before we go any further, out. Joanne, can you take us off speaker so we can hear you a little clearer, please? Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> that was me. I think she just hit the wrong button. That's okay. She'll call us back. Let's keep rolling. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the PC member for Topsail Paradise, Paul Din. Paul, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Thank you uh, for taking my call. Uh, and I do want to commend you and your show for, uh, you know, getting the issues out and getting the discussion and, and, and influence action in, in a way. And, and part of my my call this morning is in response to uh, to an issue you've raised, I've raised, and that's around the uh, seniors who are separated, uh, you know, in their golden years. And uh, you know the announcement that was made yesterday by uh, by Minister Osborne. And you know I'm getting calls already this morning uh, from uh, from grandparents, from uh, sorry parents or uh, grandchildren and the like, asking, well, what does this mean? For uh, for my parents or my grandparents now, and it, you know, it, I can't I can't say it's, it's not a good thing, but it's not reacting to or acting to what uh, what's needed now. And I've had cases of individuals I'm still dealing with them that have gone on for months and months and months uh, trying to get uh, get uh, you know loved ones who have been together and married for decades keeping them together in their latter years. So so what was announced yesterday really is not going to address that uh, immediately. It uh, certainly should have been addressed uh, long ago. It's not something that snuck up on us. It's something that's been raised in the House of Assembly for for years now. It's issues I've raised with the minister for quite some time now. Well, this current minister and, and the past minister. And uh, we've seen other provinces uh, try other issues and initiatives around this. You know, Nova Scotia, for one, who have brought in uh, the Life Partners and Long-Term Care Act about two years ago. And they're doing uh, different things there to try and keep uh, seniors together. And not necessarily long-term care, keep them together in their own homes before they even need long-term care. And, you know, I look at this uh, consultation that they're going to do. Uh, you know, the minister only in the week or the past week or two has, has touted the, uh, the health accord as a comprehensive plan. And the health accord outlines actions for, for our seniors. And now he's looking at a comprehensive review that's going to take six to eight months. So... I'm really cautious on, well, what's going to happen? Is this a delaying tactic? Is it going to de- delay action that should be happening now? Uh, it's 
left, you know, it's left to be determined. Uh, and these individuals, these couples, they don't have the benefit of time. You know, I've seen some couples who have gotten together, uh, able to get them together for for uh, for a day or two before one passes, and uh, you know, it's something that should have been looked at. It's something that needs a, a greater level of urgency to uh, to address. At one stage, the minister, and this would be Mr. Osborne, said that he understands the issue and he wants to do something, but you can't legislate change that they can't actually follow through and accommodate in full. And I get that. Yeah. But the, you're right. I mean, this should have happened a long time ago to look to other provinces for best practices you don't have to look very far no. you can only have to look to nova scotia and this issue the stories are absolutely devastating and we have to do better how that looks and works when we already have staff shortages we have some long-term care facilities for instance with 30 empty beds out in central so there's a lot to it to get it figured out but they really have to Th- that's the top of the line and you mentioned the health record M- most of the health record work and commentary surrounding uh, seniors is more effort to be uh, understood about aging in place, aging in your yeah. own home, as opposed to the institutional approach of long-term care. No, and you're correct, and that's why I mentioned, you know, uh, about staying in their homes before they even get to long-term care. And, you know, I use the same thing when we're talking about uh, other issues, about, uh, you know, when we're dealing with our health care crisis, you know. Uh, I, I try to simplify it as take take an Excel spreadsheet, <laughs> list out what other problems they're doing, see what's working, see what isn't, you know. I know that's probably a bit of an oversimplification, but, but it's a starting point. And you, you're right, you look to our neighbours. You know, uh, Nova Scotia has that act in place. But they also have other initiatives in place. They they provide uh, they provide at home assistance in the form of, for example, uh, uh, free equipment uh, for for helping lift lift your loved ones, uh, maybe from bed to wheelchair and so on. You know, there, there's different initiatives there that allow them to stay together longer, because you could have a couple where one one individual is very much independent and one not so much and uh, you know so there's a little bit of help that can be given there by, by the, the more independent individual and closer to family closer to your family supports but you know we, we've missed the bus here on something that was seen so long so long in the coming you know you talk about our baby boom wave coming this you know anyone could look back and saw this coming so now now the baby boomers are, are coming of age where they're retired and they need uh, you know greater supports than that and here we are with another another review, another review of something that's been been re- over-reviewed in the past number of years, and it's going to take another six to eight months. So it gives me a, a, a low level of confidence that in this sitting of the House, will we see any legislation? Will we see something to deal with this? I'll be pleasantly surprised if we do. And if you take it another eight months out, you're you're on the on the doorstep of the next sitting of the house, and you know are we seeing something then? So it's uh, it's unfortunate that something that was so obvious and so predictable has taken this effort to get done. And as I said at the top of the show, I applaud your show uh, for get, helping get this message out, and I applaud the individuals who have come forward with very heartbreaking and personal stories and putting a, a face to these uh, to these uh, this situation and you know that's what what had to happen to get something mo- movement on this people literally screaming for help and you know I'm, like i said i'm glad i'm glad they're doing a review but you know 
we should be doing something right now and yesterday to deal with this, to keep our seniors together, to have them age in place with dignity, respect, you know, and have choices. And those are all lovely words unless you act on them or for provide sure. the opportunity for it. Appreciate the time, Paul. Off to the final break. Thank you, Patty. And you have a great weekend. You too. Bye-bye. All the best. Paul Din, PC member for Tops of Paradise. Final break of the day, final break of the week. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Okay, let's try uh, this one more time. Line number two, say good morning to the Liberal Member of Parliament for St. John's East. That's Joanne Thompson. Joanne, you're on the air. And uh, sorry about that before. I don't know who cut who off. But anyway, um, I got a chance to listen to more of the show. So all good. Um, I wanted to touch base on uh, the the health agreement this week. Um, I am really pleased that we've been able to work with the uh, premiers uh, across the country. Um, I think what for me is what is really important is the data management piece that there's uh, accountability for how the federal funds are going to be spent. And I think on on two levels, one, it's certainly accountability, but the other side, and this is something I've said for a long time, we need to be able to understand um, the impact of uh, service provision. We need to be able to share health information in a way that it can really inform how we deliver the program and make the shifts and changes that need to happen in real time so we can move from where we are, which is really quite a broken system, into one that really does provide um, a high level of health care for Canadians because, you know, we can't lose a universal health program. System. Sure. But, I mean, inside that compilation of data and digital database, and I mean, these recommendations are a result of the Cameron inquiry, but as we found out the hard way here, it also makes us really vulnerable. Because when the Meditech system gets hacked, I wonder, should it be also part of the federal government's responsibility? If this is one of the conditions attached to this money, should the federal government not be more involved in helping protect these systems with their expertise, with their long reach, with their pocketbooks, as opposed to just the health information group here being responsible? because tens of thousands of people's information went out the door. So should the feds play a role in helping protect that system if they're the ones wanting us to create it? I I think two levels, and this is something that, you know, back to my days before politics that um, I was really quite engaged in. Um, The IT systems um, are evolving at such um, a rate that um, the interconnectivity is just part of how we develop and grow systems for starters. And I think um, the federal government has to update their IT systems. I don't believe in any level of government in this country we've kept pace with um, uh, w- with the rate of IT change. So certainly within the federal government, and you know, I see this in, in committee work that. W- there's major transformations that have to happen to bring uh, to, to bring federal government into the technology age. Same thing in, in a provincial um, across any of the provinces. So um, I don't think you can say this is municipal or in this case provincial because of health care and, and federal is a different, um, you know, is outside of that conversation. Every level of government has a responsibility to um, um, move forward quickly in IT capacity, and then part of that movement is increasingly providing the, um, the, the support from hackers, because that's another side of the reality of our world, that we're very, you know, we are at risk of, um, 
um, uh, of, of, of compromise in our system. So, so that's part of, of developing, I, I believe, developing these data management supports. Um, and it isn't just provincial. I agree with you. Federal government's got a role here as well. No doubt about it. I mean, because if this is one of the so-called strings attached or conditions and where the feds want to see this money spent, well, then they've got to go the, the next step and ensure that it is protected as best possible. And I know hackers have infiltrated even the Pentagon, mm-hmm. but there's got to be work done on that front. I think he wanted to speak to one other issue because we're quickly up against 12 o'clock here. So I saw carbon tax in the subject line before we were cut off. Is that what you want to talk about? Well, I just want to quickly say, and, and it was interesting because I heard um, comments from the callers while I was waiting online. I think the bottom line is, um, you know, environmental crisis is real. Climate change is real. And each one of us, Patty, um, as individuals, as, as com- um, corporations, as governments, we all have to do everything we can to reduce our carbon footprint. And, um, and you know, the, 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 the carbon incentive, your families will get back. The 328, a family of four in St. John's East, across the province, actually, um, uh, three times or every three months. So, you know, the point of the carbon tax is not for families and and Canadians to um, be unduly harmed. Basically, we all have to do what we do, whatever we can, to reduce um, emissions. But the fact is, the people who are the highest pollutants need an incentive to begin to move to lower uh, emissions. Yeah, but the uh, biggest polluters get to take advantage of carbon credits and stuff, which is not really part of the individual household's opportunity to deal with these additional taxes or levies, however people want to refer to it. But the biggest problem in this province is attaching the carbon tax to home heating fuels. There are, I think there's a fair argument to be made that I can adjust my driving habits, the type of vehicle that I drive, those types of things. Mm-hmm. But we don't have a whole lot of wiggle room with heating our homes. Do you think a carbon tax should be applied to home heating fuels? Well, I do, because I think we need to move off home heating fuels. I mean, the fact is we need to move. We have brilliant um, um, electrical rates, right? I mean, that was a real gift from the federal government. So there are supports in place to help people move to heat pumps, for example. There's provincial and federal supports, and we need to help people move from oil, which we cannot control those prices. Um, it, it, it's not in line with, with where we need to be in terms of our emissions. I mean, the bottom line is, Patty, climate change um, action is needed now. We are running out of time. We have deadlines in terms of, of the targets that we need to meet. I mean, this is about a future for our children. But and so I don't think any of us can say, you know, because um, um, because I have, for example, in my home, which I don't, but let's say that I had um, um, or I was oil dependent, that I stay oil dependent knowing that that is an emission that basically is going to harm my children's future. Sure, but at the same time, it's a bit counterintuitive. I'm going to have to pay more to heat my home, even if I take advantage of some programs. It comes up with an upfront cost to move away from using home heating fuels, stove oils and or furnace oil. So I'm paying more to heat my home, which means less money for me to take advantage of these programs and make the shift. And a lot of people here, the reality is they simply can't afford that upfront cost, regardless of the supports or rebates coming from either level of government. Uh, I wish we had more time because I really wanted to talk about some other issues, including McKinsey & Co. uh, and the enormous amount of money spent to that consulting company. But maybe you can join us again in the near future to address that and many other things that would be on my laundry list of questions for the government. (laughs) Absolutely. I look forward to it. Thank you. Take care. 
Thanks. Bye. Bye bye, Stuart Thompson, Liberal MP for St. John's East. All right, we're out of time. Good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program. Oh, I'll be away next week, so you'll have an opportunity to speak with, I guess, Tim sitting in. Is he David? Yeah. All right, and we will pick up this conversation on Monday morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy weekend. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.